Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm joined by my friend, Brenda Austin. In this episode, Brenda discusses how her disillusionment with this education system led to her discovering massage therapy and founding Now and Zen Body Works. Next, we discuss Brenda's spiritual awakening and the daily practices she's used to cultivate the inner light within her. We then chat about our journeys with psychedelics and how they facilitated the breaking of misconceptions in our worldviews. From there, we consider our food supply and the idea that what you eat in private, you show in public. We end the conversation with some of our highlights from our holographic sound tour to Egypt and Jordan. This outro is titled Five Egyptian Mysteries. Outros available for this and all episodes at entangledpodcast.substack.com. Music from the show available on the Spotify playlist Entangled the Vibes. Please enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Entangled. Tonight, I am so excited to be catching up with my dear friend, Brenda Austin. Brenda, how are you doing tonight? Hey, Jordan. How you doing? I'm so delighted to be on the show. What an honor. Oh, I'm so excited to have you joining me tonight and also just excited to catch up. It's been, um, you know, what is it now? It's almost three months since we were together every day, all day for that crazy trip to Egypt and Jordan. So it's, it's fun to get to chat with you again. Yes, it is. Dang, three months already. Crazy, wow. right? I'm still dreaming about the pyramids and the temples. I feel like I'm there still, like even right now with you. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Maybe we still are. Yeah, you know? we still are. Yeah, subconscious <laughs> minds. Tell the listeners a little bit about your story, right? What, uh, where'd you grow up, and how did you end up on a holographic sound tour to Egypt in November? <laughs> Gosh, so uh, I, I grew up in Los Angeles, California, about two miles from USC. Um, I started running track when I was about ten years old. Literally, when I turned ten, I was on like if that was my only Christmas gift that I wanted was to run track and to be on a team. And my aunt B that lives in New Jersey, she knew some friends that she went to school with who had a track team in LA. So my uncle, he took me there and uh, next thing you know, I'm on a track team. 14 years later, I run myself and get a track scholarship at Lincoln University. And um, I run track there, got my bachelor's of, of science there um, and wellness and just really, really was still figuring out at that time why did i end up in missouri why did i end up in snow that late there <laughs> it was like okay i went where the scholarship was and it was a great it was a great school um a great program uh after that i graduated may 2007 where we had the recession of the lifetime that i can never remember and it was planted in my head from young go to school get a college education and you'll be able to create whatever life you want no 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 that wasn't for me that wasn't it that wasn't my story it was just like no how do people do this is this a lie is this a scam like it left me may 2027 still working at the same restaurant i was working 
in my college days, in my college years of just like, whoa, I did all that to still be doing the same thing. It doesn't feel like you, I went through a shift. It just feels like, oh, you put on the cap and gown and you're there and then you're back doing what you were doing before. And, um, you know, that didn't sit well with me. That didn't sit well with me at all. So um, probably took me about a month soaking and going through the process of self-sabotage to figure out. And I talked to um, one of my uncles and he had told me, um, why don't you pursue physical therapy like you wanted to do in the first place? And I was like, you know what, you're right. Let me see what schools are around. So I went ahead and applied and did everything the whole summer to get the application together. And I was calling the lady, the head, the, the lady who was at the front desk, asking her, hey, what do I put on this line? What is this? What does this mean? Because, you know, sometimes it's different schools and you just want to make sure it's right. And I know I got on this lady's nerves. <laughs> but she still answered. She still, like, I would literally wait to 8 o'clock in the morning to, to talk to her to answer just a few questions. Long story short, I mailed everything in, Come gets a letter, I get a letter in the mail the next two weeks or so. The letter says, you got your application, but you didn't get into the program this year. Try again next year. I'm like, oh, okay. So what in the world? Let me call, let me call her again and see. She's like, yeah, I didn't see it. A week or so later, she calls me and tells me the application was on her desk the whole time. And it was at the bottom of the application list. I'm like, oh, fun, fun, fun. So after that, I'm like, all right, I'm just going to, you know, take a little year off, go through, do a couple courses online, still work at the restaurant I was working in, and then just apply next year. So I reapplied everything, and I sent it in that way, and uh, got another letter in the mail. Yay, yay, yay. I ripped, I ripped this letter open so much, I almost tore the whole letter. And uh, when it came down to reading it, it said, uh, you didn't get in again. You're on the wait list number 11. And I was like, oh my gosh, what do I do with my life? Go back to school? What What do I do? What's happening? What's going on? I couldn't figure it out. But what was happening was that with the recession at that time, everybody was losing their jobs, getting laid off, you know? So they were going back to school to find a different career. And these were people that, you know, were really serious and that took that time to, you know, move forward. And, uh, I called the lady, the head of the department of that school for the physical um, therapy program and not realizing, you know, usually when you call people, they usually answer the phone, right? Like you leave a message, they get back to you. Nope. When it comes down to people who want to get in the program, she was not call- She was not responding. She was not calling me back. And it wasn't until the that summer to that November. So about three, four months later, she called me back and I was so surprised she called me back. I left her a message almost every weekend. I didn't, I didn't know what was going to happen with my life. I don't know what I'm doing. I didn't know where to go. I'm still in Missouri. Do I go back to LA and live? Well, it's chaos going there. Where do I find my footing? Where do I find my place, you know, in life? So once she talked to me, she gave me so much insight about the application and everything was a point system. And she broke down the application and she broke down the, um, gosh, this is so crazy. The professional letters that was mailed separately in the envelope by themselves. I didn't know what they said about me at all. Mm-hmm. There was misspelled words. There was fragment sentences, she said. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I couldn't even proofread that because it was in the envelope, you know. But still, that was a that was part of the point system. Mm. So 
Yeah. And so when I, even my high school GPA, she was like, if you would have got a 4.0 instead of like a 3.6, then, you know, that would have put you, you know, more points ahead of everybody. And I'm like, yeah, I have like three college degrees right now. I'm not going back to high school at this point. It was just, but it was, it was good information that she was telling me. So I took that information. I asked her about a college where um, their promotion was amazing. Kind of got on your nerves after a while. It was embedded in your brain every time they had open enrollment. And they did a good job with it, with their marketing. And I asked her about that, that program. And she said, you know what? A lot of people do that. They go to that school and then they transfer over. You can do that. So that was my next step. Okay, I have something. I have something under my feet. I'm going to go ahead and apply for the school. I go to the school, wasn't too far from where I lived or I worked, stopped in there, went through the financial aid, everything. And so because I had I already used a Pell Grant for my bachelor of science degree, I had to take out loans and they were a different type of school. There wasn't anything. Um, I was getting myself through school with paying for everything myself, scholarships and stuff like that. And I wasn't using anything from my parents. And so when it came down to the options of taking loans out, I was like, I don't want to take out, you know, many loans. So she gave me an option and she said, why don't you have any of your parents that, you know, can do your tax return? Because at this time I wasn't 24 yet. And she said, um, you're going to need, you know, somebody to go forward. After that, I called my mom and asked for a tax return. My mom told me, no, I had to wait a whole nother six to seven months until I turned 24 and then went through that whole open enrollment. So next thing you know, I start 2009 in June in the massage therapy program, getting up at seven o'clock in the morning, <laughs> getting into school, going through the quarter system, figuring out, oh my gosh, is this something I really want to do? But still at the end of that is saying a golden star, a sparkle, something that's going to heighten your life, something that you need to stick with, go ahead and go for it. So I went through about the nine month program with the school, graduated top of the class, past the MBLEX, which is the massage therapy program. I'm um, excuse me, the massage therapy um, state test. And um, that was the beginning journey of the massage career. So now it's like, well, let's get a job. Let's get it. Let's, let's do something. And at that time, when I took out those student loans for the massage um, industry, massage license, I decided that, you know what, this might just be my haul. This might just be my stop. Maybe that first no going to that physical therapy school and then that second no going to apply to that physical therapy school. Maybe that's just not where I'm supposed to go. Maybe mm -hmm. I'm looking at it as something that I'm not supposed to move forward in, you know? Yeah. Let, let me let, let me look at my other options. You know what the I mean? Obstacle is the way. You know, the obstacles is the way. And I took that and I said, Okay, I graduated, I have this license. Let me go ahead and see what it is. So I applied for different massage jobs and my colleagues that I ran track with or was in school with or in the program with the massage therapy program, they were getting these jobs before me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like great for them. But whoa, what is happening? It took me about two to three months to really realize The amount of time I was spending of people to tell me I'm good enough for this job. I can, I'm good enough to make this amount of money. I'm good enough to be worth this. 
I was waiting for people to tell me that you're good enough to have this pay rate. You're good enough to have this job. And I said, enough is enough. I need to create my own way. I need to create my own job. And I got up one one morning and I was sitting up. I think it was like four or five o'clock in the morning. I was sitting up in bed and I just was like, no, no, no. So that day I decided to go to every lease, every office building and see what the what the um what the options what the process was for me to apply for these business you know this business to rent and start my massage career to start my massage business and that's where now is in body works was created in jefferson city missouri and that was a a a a thing where the epiphany of being a massage school and running track as soon as the instructor started to talk to me talk to this class. Really, I felt like she was talking to me, but talk to the class about sports massage. And I knew everything about the body. I just didn't know the muscles, name of the muscles. I didn't know the structure. I didn't know the names for it. I knew the stretches that she was saying all in order. It was like I already had the book instilled in my brain to do it. And I was like, okay, this is something I have to do. I was an empath who didn't like to shake people's hands hug people, be close to people, be in a room full of people. Like it was just people at this point, like, yeah. And I needed to, I guess, go through that process to realize like, hey, you can do this. You're supposed to stick with this. This is going to take you and build you to something more and greater. Even though it didn't feel, it didn't feel comfortable. That's just what it was. It didn't feel comfortable at that time. So I created the business. I created Nouns and Body Works. I did chair massages. I was at the state. I mean, I did any any event that somebody wanted a massage therapist there. They would just invite me to come. It would be sometimes a little vendor fee and sometimes it just wasn't because they knew that I had the ambition. They knew that I was um, literally on the run for my life, on the run for my career, on the, on the run to create something great for myself. And um, those people that trusted in me, that mentored me in a way, that see something great in myself that I didn't even see in myself at first. They seen it in me. I didn't see it in myself. Like they see the light. I'm like, where is the light? I don't see it yet. <laughs> they seen it. And that was great. And um, the amount of energy that I put into that business and creating that business is what kept me afloat. Then I realized, you know, then I realized like, oh, So it takes you about three to four months to process something to shift out of this. It takes you a few months to shift out of this. Now what? And I'm thinking like, man, three to four months, that's kind of a short time if you're working on something, but then that's a really long time to be stuck in the same place. Then it really is. It really is. Then I start to realize my childhood, things I went through, my brain process, things that I was thinking and saying and doing and people I was being around, I had to shift out of that. I had to change that. I had to I had to realize that I was activating my life in a way that I didn't even like anymore. I wasn't even comfortable. And I had to pull away, you know? I had to pull away and I had to go within. And once I started to go within and started to retrain my brain, as people would say, as I started to 
uh, be alive, feel alive. I started to feel different. I tried, started to look different. People started to see me differently and was asking, well, what's going on with you? Where did all this yeah. positive stuff come from? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not about all that anymore. You know, it's like, how do you respond? Like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a new person, but for the good. But still, those people didn't see me. They didn't see how much work I did for myself. They didn't see how much time I put into myself. You know, they didn't see how much you when you by yourself. You're like, man, I don't really like myself. Much. Like, whoa, I don't like these habits. Like, what's going on? And finally, you're like, man, I truly love myself. I truly care for myself and that passion, you know, within me, it just drove me deeper and deeper to put that momentum into my business, but into my personal life as well. You know, it's cool that you say that. And it's, I have to say that like one of the things that really drew me to you on our trip was just, I could just feel this energy, this passion inside of you. Uh, Just like Mm. exactly as you described it. I don't know. Just like, I I could tell you're just a force to be reckoned with and a and a force for good. And I wanna I wanna ask you about a phrase you use, and I don't remember the exact words, but you said something about you know finding that light inside of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be curious if you could expand on you know what what do you mean by that, and what has that journey been for you to find that light? At, you know, growing up. You know, I think people call it a spiritual spiritual awakening. You know, and I feel like we have so many different levels of spiritual awakening. Like I had one last month and I had another one last week. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is getting awesome. But when you are in a place where people call anxiety, depression, um, addicted to stuff, you know, substance abuse, however you want to say, all those things are lower vibration. You living in fear, you living in anger, you living in guilt, right? We all know that those aren't happy feelings and happy thoughts. That's where I was in different parts of my life. I was blaming people. I was the victim. I was, why are you not blah, blah, this, blah, blah, that, right? It left me feeling like all I'm doing is running on a treadmill that's going in a circle, like a little rat, like a little mouse. It's that spinning wheel. And I'm working on getting to the start. But the start is the end and the end is the start. And all I'm doing is just keep on passing it by, you know. And so the feeling of um, once I forgave a lot of people and a lot of things, a lot of hurt, and a lot of anguish that was within me that I was holding on to. I was like, man, I'm a big grudge person. I do not like this about myself. Why am I holding this grudge? Like, OK, that experience happened. I don't need to rah, 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 be so mad and angry and bring it up to people like they know what they did i know what they did i know how they said it yes they hurt me but i realized that i was acting from a place of the little girl that was hurt as a child too you know that little girl oh my gosh you know and once i started to heal that little girl from all that hurt i started to shine bright within myself i started to feel less heavy I started to free myself. I started to feel just this bright aura around me of just love. Like just a warm hug each and every day I wake up. You know, and it was a it was a it was a place and a peacefulness and a balance that I wanted to get to in myself to release. 
and that light within me and that light that shines within me it now isn't just what's inside me it radiates out of me and i just want everybody to get to a spot get to a point that they they know what that feels like and them doing it themselves not waiting for somebody to do it or say it to them and i think that that's really important you know yeah did you find any um good tactics or or yeah like good tactics for um both cultivating those those um beliefs in yourself right number one and number two any more like practical daily practices that you did to help cultivate that as well yes of course so i think for me i started to um i don't know why i was led to follow oprah maybe it's my mom would get her VHS and um, record them. And she had like 30 episodes that she needed to catch up. Maybe that was just the first person or maybe it was something that caught my eye. But I started with Oprah. You know, I was gravitated to her or her story. And I knew the times that she was born in wasn't, you know, love and light times, you know, when things that she experienced. And I started to follow her journey. And, and she really didn't get out of her way or, you know, get into the career that she wanted because people kept on telling her no or a man was better than her and i started to follow that and it was a youtube i believe called leadership success and it's about a hour and a half and i believe some college students are um, interviewing her and at the university the college woman is is interviewing her and um i listened to that for probably a month straight like you know how people watch tv or show or netflix before they went to bed I would get my YouTube and I um and I would listen and she started to like unlock things in my brain and it was words I didn't understand at that time and it started to shift and I started to awaken more and more and more and then I started to realize oh my gosh the people that she is interviewing are amazing in these books in these book clubs I started to realize like wow they're talking about spirituality in this interview, in this interview, in this interview. So the tactics and things that I started to learn was from them. The programs that they have, the books that they've written. Oh, I need to read more? Okay, let me go ahead and read as much as I can. I don't care if I have to read the book more than once until I get it, until I understand the message and view it with different lenses each time. That was my thing. Another thing is, uh, I really just like journaling because once I re read it, I was like, this does not sound good. This sounds, this is not, you know, this is, whoa, man. And you start to self-sabotage and you start to go through your loop and you start to, but really it's meant to like purge. It's meant to like release. It's meant to like break free and break through. And I've, I've just, and I actually now I enjoy going back and reading my journals because I put the dates or I put the mood or I put the time and day and then it, it clicks for me to remember like, yeah, Brenda, that wasn't a great week, but you've got through here because look at this journal entry, you know, journaling was a big thing for me. Um, another thing is that I'm a water person. I have to be submerged in water. So I know people are like, oh, I don't like baths. I can't stay in baths that long. I sweat. I don't like to sweat. They have all these things for me. <laughs> like for real, for me, I can stay in a bathtub for three or four hours. I put my Dead Sea salt. I put my pink Himalayan salt. 
I put, you know, my roses or my crystals or my candles that I create, you know, around me. I play my playlist or my instincts, whatever it is. I create the mood for me. And that's another place. That's another playground for me to release in the water and use the water, the spirit of the water to assist in healing me and assist in speaking to me so I can hear the water as well. You know, it's such an honor to be to have water in our body, to be creator from water, you know, to cleanse us, to heal us and all those things. So I create that atmosphere as well. Another thing is getting massages, like muscles and working and tense and typey type type and text messages and, you know, all that stuff that puts a lot of strain on our muscles and our shoulders and our back. And once we feel that release within our body, it's just as from out of fight or flight, into like a systematic like feeling of, you know, like euphoria. Like we feel amazing. We feel blessed. The person who just put all that energy and time and work to assist in us and we feel that within us. It's just like, thank you. You know, you, you get emotional sometimes after massages because you really do feel a better release when you do because somebody took time to care about you to want to make you feel better. You know, so those are a few things. What about you? I'd say my spiritual awakening was definitely more abrupt, for sure. It involved really getting over the mental roadblock that spirituality and science, right, are not antithetical, but rather complementary at their fundamental nature. That started when I saw a documentary that introduced me to a, a bunch of metaphysical concepts. Um, mm. And a lot of what I was seeing, like, the, it didn't mention psychedelics at all, but what I... what it was talking about really resonated with experiences I'd had on psychedelics. Um, mm. And then two weeks after that, I decided to, you know, really explore consciousness with a high dose of psychedelics and had like a breakthrough ego dissolution moment that really mm. validated a lot of these ideas I'd just been introduced to. Yeah. Um, but I'd say since that time, transcendental meditation for sure has been the biggest thing for me to, uh, to really uh, incorporate that spiritual realm of the absolute into my daily life and to, and to, I think, directly experience the physiological benefits of that and to recognize that, you know, we are, we are manifestations of the divine, that this light and sign of us is, is connected to something eternal and of pure bliss and harmony. Oh yeah. Yeah. Psychedelics was introduced to me during um about two years ago in the summer of june and i was going through a, a tough time with the parental and uh i was triggered again and i was like oh my gosh i'm triggered again by this this feels like this is the most heaviest thing in my life and say it happened on sunday the next week was a saturday i was around these people and they were like we were working out and they're like, what's going on with you? Why are you so distant? What's, you know, what's happening? You seem different. And I was like, I'm just, and I'm, I'm going through this, but I'm just blaming the person and blaming and blaming and blaming. And then somebody has said to me, you should go talk to, you know, this person because they were experiencing that too. And they did some psychedelics that really helped them. You should go talk to them and see if they, so I ran over there. like, And I, I, I signed up the next month. And I was like, okay, I'm going. And they're like, oh, you're really going to go? Usually we tell people, they just like, oh, okay, maybe that's not for me, or maybe that is for me, or maybe not right now. I'm like, no, this has been an ongoing thing. I want to 
I need help to release this. And I want to experience this to be more. So I went for three days, three ceremonies. And uh, yeah. What, what, what psychedelic was it? It was ayahuasca. Uh-huh. Yeah, ayahuasca. And um, it was a very interesting experience for me. The first one was at night, that evening. We got in about Friday, started, I don't know, 8, 8.30 or something with all the ceremonies and the prayers. And I'm looking around like, I felt like everybody knew what was going to happen. And I just did it like I was lost. Took my first cup, sat by the fires outside. And it was in Florida. So you know how that Florida weather is rainy on and off and humid and rainy. So it was just one of those nights. It was a full moon. I'll never forget it. It was Southern Cherry Strawberry um, Full Moon. And it was, um, I was outside. I just knew I needed to be in a fire. We had a tent that was outside, a couple of tents. And with the experience of that, one thing they said to me that I never forget, they were like, if you need to purge, go on your hands and your knees. So I felt like it was coming up. And so I got the trash can that they provided for us and I put my head in. All the medicine was working and everybody quicker, it seemed like, than it was for me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, release, release all this, like release. You know, you start to go through your your things in your head and I'm saying it's all in my head and there was a guy that was in my tent and at medicine just took him and he's like purging like a whole person is coming out of him like it was such an excruciating sound for me I felt like he was on top of my back purging and I was like oh my gosh this medicine is making me more sensitive like whoa oh my gosh I don't think I want this to happen because you know the sensitivity comes and you're like Oh my gosh, like there's people around. Am I going to, you know, go a little cuckoo at this time? (laughs) Like, you know, you start to freak out. Then I had to calm myself down. And next thing you know, the music, the music got me and the medicine hit me like whoosh. And I had a friend who was my client, which I call her my soul sister now. And she had participated in ayahuasca in Peru and she, excuse me, in Costa Rica. And she had told me, her experience and I told her I was finally going. She was like, I'm so happy for you. I'm so proud of you. She said, if you ever get stuck or you ever feel, just smile and just be grateful. And at that time, that was the best thing that she could have said to me because I got stuck in a lot of places. Next thing you know, I'm seeing a frog. Next thing you know, I'm going through this experience. And I felt like I was going through initiation of like awakening in a sense. And it didn't feel good of a welcoming, but everything that's going through your head in the process, the smells, the sound, the people that was there, the facilitators was there to assist us and help us and help us whatever we needed, you know. And that first night was pretty tough for me. It was pretty tough. And um, there was things that I was thinking and seeing. You don't know what it was. There was a lot of craziness going on in the world two years ago on the news in every in every state really you know and um one of the guys who seen that i was struggling because it was time to eat and uh they said if you're doing a daytime ceremony don't eat so i'm like water i need something tea you know something so i'm walking to the kitchen and he nudges me he's like hey you okay and i guess maybe he said something to me before but i'm still stuck in my head because i'm thinking i created everything all the chaos that was happening in the world I'm like, oh my gosh, did I create this? Did this happen? Is this real? Oh my gosh, I'm so stuck in my head. So he was like, hey, are you good? So I asked him, you know, is he, 
he was like, oh no, it's real. You didn't create this. And I'm like, okay. Like, and so he was, he was seeing me and he was talking to me. Then another guy walked up to me. He was like, he was like, you, he's like, you really did good work last night. He was like, all I would can do is see you. He's like, your ancestors was there with you the whole time. He was like, they were just helping you and they were just there for you. Whatever you needed, you thought you, I know you thought you were by yourself because literally it was raining. I was still the only one outside, you know, except for the facilitators. Everybody went in the tent and it was just like, you people are there, you know, you can feel the energy, but it was, it was interesting. A funny thing about the psychedelic is that one of the ladies that switched shifts, um, that she went and ate lunch and again, the whole purging thing. And I never purged. I never purged. I never purged. Nothing ever came out of me and out of my mouth. And she came to me the next day and she said, I went to lunch and you came back. She was laughing. And I was like, what? What did I do? She was like, your head was in that bucket the whole night. I said, it was in the bucket the whole night? I said, oh, no, it couldn't have been. She was like, I was like, I see so many things. I was like, I see the sacred geometry shapes. I was like, oh, wow, those are real, you know? And I was like, whoa, you know, just the movement and the shapes and how I was breathing with it. And it would change in a sense. Like, you know, it was just very blissful in that sight. But things that I had seen and experienced going through, I didn't understand. People who was there, people who was experiencing it with me that literally physically wasn't there. It was, um, so after that, I didn't go back to that facility, but I found um, some shamans. And um, that next year, a year and a half, I went almost three every three to four months to assist me with what I still was going through because you have to integrate and you have to do the work you know, for what you want to release or some things that come up that you didn't realize that was stuck deep down inside of you that you just kept pushing and pushing down, you know? And so um, I had found a community of people who really um, understood the medicine and they introduced me to other medicines. There's a medicine called Yopo and it basically um, sees the jungle, which they uh, turn into a powder, kind of like hape, like the tobacco snuff. And um, after we took two cups of Aya, I told the shaman, I told her, I want to do Yopo today. She's like, you want to do Yopo? Like, she's super excited about the medicine. And I'm like, yeah, I think it's time. So she came and got me and she was like, you ready? It's Yopo time. And I said, no, I need 10 more minutes. She said, Brenda, there's no time here. I said, you're right, but can you give me, can you give me like the fake time for 10 minutes? And she started laughing. She started laughing. She was like, okay, okay, I'll come back. Uh And so I started my prayer, you know, and I started going through like whatever I needed because at this point, I'm a little scared. I'm Uh a little terrified. And I'm like, I don't usually scare, you know, that easy. Maybe I'm a little nervous, but I was kind of scared. I'm like, well, can I back out of this? I'm like, she's not going to let me back out because she already know I need this. Went to the bathroom, drank some water. She came up to me. She did the prayer. One nostril, next nostril. And I just felt another, it was like I went to another realm, another wow. dimension, another place. Wait, and she, I, you, you drank it through your nose? What do you mean your nostrils? No, it's a, it's a seed that they grind up. It's a uh-huh. powder similar to the rape or the hape, which is uh-huh. the tobacco stuff. Oh, no way. So this wasn't ayahuasca. They provide ayahuasca, yes. But they introduced me to other medicines as well. So 
the yopo is seeds from the jungle that they um, grind up into a powder in herbs. And it has an effect. So they have a tepe, which is connected from the shaman's mouth to the person they're putting in the nose, which will be okay. me, one nostril at a time. Got it. And she blew left then right nostril. Immediately I had the, um, the urgency to purge. And when we purge, we purge into the ground. They dig holes and we purge. That purge hole was my, was my purge hole for the rest of the night because it took me through about a three or four hour experience. And usually people would last for about 15 minutes. It took me through my ancestors talking to me and, and teaching me and taking me back to different places and different things where they were saying, like, you, you see why you had to go through this? You see why you had to experience that? You see why you had to see that? You see why we showed you that? Like it went through that and I was literally having a conversations with them. And it was a waking experience where I'm like, oh, I'm not just crazy. Like this is real. Because they come and they go. They might be clear one day. They might not be. And it was a whole blown out conversation for me. And um, at that time with Yopo, I lost my eyesight. I visually couldn't see. And I knew that I had an orange sweater on, like touching myself. Like I was, I was going like through the process of like feel, touch, smell. And at this point, I'm like, wait, am I here or did I dream that? Because it, it just took me to a whole different place. And I found myself like eating dirt. And I was like, oh my gosh, wait, no, this is dirt. Okay, yes, I am here. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh wait, hold on, that's grass. No, I, I don't want to smell that. Like, Spit that out. Like, it was pretty gross. And so, but I knew that I had an orange sweater. So I knew that the only thing is that, like, my touch was okay. My taste was okay. I could smell. It was a, it was a, I could feel the sun coming up, you know? And I just, I couldn't see. And that was the last thing of what my ancestors were telling me that I needed to go through to see again. And I've had to follow them because I didn't realize I was hard headed until they they led me on a journey, a structural journey. And why I needed to learn the chakras, why I needed to learn crystals, why I needed to learn um, what this people's modality was, why I needed to, you know, it took me through all that. And then once I started to realize what it was, I followed it. And when I followed it, it started to lead me to speaking positive about myself and positive things. And it just clicked. It clicked. I was like, oh, this medicine does not need to be tough. They do not need to be hard. You do not need to be curled up in a ball to get the messages that you need. Like it's my it's my thought process still, my thought process. And I was like, oh, okay. So I need to continue to work on that in a different way. And that's what I did. I opened my mind up a little bit more. And um, I think at that time I started to... Um, Listen to Don Miguel, The Four Agreements. Have you heard of that one? And you haven't? So the agreements are basically always do your best. You know, keep your word, you know, in a sense. Um, don't judge people. Don't assume, you know, in that sense. And so I started to realize how much I was not doing my best, how much I was assuming, like assuming, like the assumption with psychic abilities was like, wow, like I already know what you have to say before you say it. 
But I couldn't do that because it really was an evasion of privacy without realizing that's what I was doing. You know, it's just like I have this sense about this and I already know what it is. And it was it was still going through the process of just learning and learning the rules about spirituality. There's so many different rules that you have to play into and stay within. You can't just do your own thing. Like there's absolutely no way. So going back to the ayah, that was my intention that I was working on for about the year. I found it through the medicine of Yopo. And that psychedelic experience was awakening for me. It was heart opening for me. Then that's where my light shined a little bit brighter. And that parental that I was still having a conflict with, I no longer was um, holding that person responsible for the things that I experienced as a child. And I just, I had to think about it and look at it like my parental did the best yeah. that they could. That was the best time and the best thing. The be- I mean, things could have been worse. You know, when I think about it, they could have been worse. Yeah. But it was just what I needed to push me up out to be the person that I am. You know, and I'm, I'm forever grateful for that experience, even even though it was tough going through it. But still. Totally. I can imagine. Yeah. And um, curious if you'd be willing to, you know, touch a little deeper into what were some of those experiences that you worked through. Yeah. So one of them was... Um, the experience that I was mentioning earlier, I'll start with that one, was um, with my mom. Me and my mom were, how she would tell me, as I was born, I was a mama's girl. My mom had got sick or something like that, and she was in a hospital for about a week or two. Uh, my, my father was around, and I became a daddy's girl. So when it came, came into that motion, my dad was in and out of our lives for my whole life. So it was some part of um, resentment that I always felt, you know, or um, it was something that I just was like, whoa, you know, and the arguments and the different things that me and my mom didn't agree on throughout my life. It's it led me to just not feel um, loved the way I thought that I should have been loved. So and I think that that's a lot of things with a lot of people as they experience. And when I was about 20, 24, I caught her and talked to her and I was not nice to her. I was disrespectful and all type of things. And But I told her everything that was in my head that was bothering me. And I feel like that's a good release. And I didn't like go in a cray cray, cuckoo time, you know, to like, but it was just, I just, I needed it to get out. I needed to purge that information. And one thing I always bring up is that um, I ran track for 14 years. My brother played baseball. He played, he ran track for a little bit. And my mom only came to four track meets of mine. And that really bothered me because when you're at these track meets and you're traveling all these states and you're doing good, you know, the people that was supposed to be there, like they rooted me on. The mothers that were there took me in and loved me as if I was their daughter. The coaches were amazing to me, you know, but still when you go home and you see and you're around this person and share this stuff, even if I won four gold medals that day, it wasn't an interest to her, you know, and it just kind of sucked because you go from this high energy back down to this depressive energy and, you, and I felt, I felt stuck, you know? And so um, the situation that really took me off that weekend was it was Mother's Day and we, we had just opened up, well, we were still closed and I had did some, um, some mobile massages for some people that just wanted to treat their wives, wanted to treat their girlfriends, wanted to treat their sisters. And um, I did a couple of those and I had to work in three months really and my feet were really bothering me. So um, 
I was like going to drive to an outlet. And so I called my mom. Let me call my mom and tell her, you know, happy Mother's Day. They're about two hours difference for me um, in Central Time. They're on West Coast Time. And my mom says, hey, Brand, how are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm good. Tell her about my day. She was like, oh, well, you finally called me. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, well, your brother and sister already called me to tell me happy Mother's Day. And I was like, oh, I didn't know it was a time limit. Like, what I was, I was working, you know? And it just, like, triggered me, like, the comparison again. You know, the comparison of this, the comparison of that. And me being a middle child, you didn't always feel like you stuck in between of this and that. And I'm like, oh, was I supposed to get up at the crack of dawn to say Happy Mother's Day? No, I probably could have, but you got you got one thing on your mind, which is to make money, which is to grind, which is to drive, which is to make sure you go into all these places safe and sound. You know, and once I got to unwind and unro- and relax, it was like, okay, let me let me call. You know, and so from that time, it was just kind of like, did I set that expectation up for myself from doing it the past before? Or was it still being stuck in between your siblings in that way to be compared to they talk to her every day or they have interest in this? They talk about things that I don't talk about. They, they don't talk about spirituality with me. They don't talk about chakras. They talk about fashion and what's the latest um, things that happen with people that they don't even know. They can tell you the whole life story about people, the favorite dress, who they dated. I don't have that information in my head. That's not stuff that interests me. So when it came down to that, that was something that I, I did meditate and pray about, hey, I want to at least be open and closer to her to, to open that, you know, open that door. Is it me? Is it everything that I'm holding on to? Let me help myself so I don't have that wall up anymore. Let me unblock that. And so um, that's what I worked through the plant medicine to do. And um, even though that sounds great and it probably should have ended with a great, but still at this time, me and our mother's relationship is still not all the way how I would love it to be. And I've accepted that. And I've said, I'm just going to be me. I'm just going to live my life and I'm just going to worry about me. And anybody that comes into my life that wants to listen or wants my assistance, I'm going to go all in. Just like if they were my family, were my mm-hmm. friend, my loved one, regardless of what it is, you know, mm-hmm. just to give back the reciprocity. Yeah. You know, and it's really interesting story you bring up. And I feel like um, one of the consistent themes I find with folks who have discovered spirituality that weren't, you know, brought up with it is that mm-hmm. almost universally uh, it's caused very significant strains on pre-existing relationships, right? And and it's been, you know, very difficult to work through that. And I'm curious, like, you kind of touched on it, but like, how has that been where it's like, how, how do you think about that transition? And is there way a way to safely navigate it so that you don't lose, you know, your prior friends, but that you also can find uh, a community that's open open to some of these topics that folks who you know who don't believe in spirituality just frankly you know don't want to talk about you know i feel like there's not just one group for us i realize i'm a traveler i travel from group to group to group to either enlighten or be inspired and once i realize that i I literally go through it still every every kind of like every season when i elevate myself or i get into that enlightenment phase who i was attracting or what stage i was at I'm pulling away from them. Mm-hmm. 
And it feels like a loss. It feels like a breakup. And it feels like a, a grief moment, right? Because, oh, you miss talking to Chad and seeing him on Saturdays and playing video games. Or you miss going to the spa with Nancy. You know, it's it's not something like that. So um, in that moment that I share with people, I just be myself because I want them to be themselves. Mm-hmm. And when I realize that Every time I'm within a group of people, um, I know that I'm not going to be there that long. And I was, I start telling people now, like, hey, you know, we met at this level and this energy and this is what we have in common. But just because we don't talk or anything happens, don't think that you did anything wrong and I don't like you anymore or mm-hmm. I don't want to talk to you. Just know that I'm continuously working on myself to be better for myself. But like everybody has a mission and why they are on this earth, right? Why on this planet? And why waste, and I wasted so much time being in a depressive state. I wasted so much time being in a victim state. I don't want to waste any more time in that in the places that I don't need to be in, mm-hmm. you know? And I have to do myself, you know, the justice of giving myself the awe. So I did go through that big thing, probably about, Really, I still go through it, but I think the last two or three years, it really was really heavy for me because I started to realize, oh, this person was just the, you know, the interferer to introduce me to this person. So Mm -hmm. this person can introduce, you know, it starts Mm -hmm. to become Mm -hmm. a chain, right? And then you start to like enjoy that, you know, once you start to start to say, oh, that's why I seen that person at the grocery store for them to introduce and it, be, it comes a beautiful journey and you start to enjoy it more because instead of trying to control your life, you start to go into the flow of how life is meant for you to go on, you know? Mm-hmm. You discover yeah, that yeah. Tao and just flow with it. Yeah, the flow is the best, you know? Having an open mind, an open heart and your faith, yeah. you know? Your faith is, is very important for that. And then just letting your guard down, having trust that everything is going to be work out and not worry. And if you're saying, hey, I, I was great yesterday, but today I woke up not feeling that great. Like, accept that. Like, yeah. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just not cool right now. Like, yeah. this is just what it is. What do I do to get myself out of this? What necessary tools and steps help me get out of this? Yeah. You know, and you have to do that. Sometimes it takes me five to seven days if I work myself to the ground. Mm-hmm. You know, if I know that I haven't, like when I went to Egypt with you, we can touch on that in a second. I worked for like two, three months straight, you know, and was like happy to have sleep, you know. It was like, oh, and then I was like, did I get enough sleep? Because I'm not tired right now. Like, mm-hmm. how do people just fall asleep without being tired? Like, what do they do? Oh, okay, let me listen to a podcast. Listen to Untangled. Let me go ahead and see what's going on. So get my mind and then learn some new information too. And let me listen to Audible, you know. Let me do a little little workout, little sit-ups, do a little jump up, go for a swim, whatever it is, you know. You started to discover different things without you being tired. So Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, so you mentioned that, you know, you're you're still working on your relationship with your mom's not quite where you know, you'd like it to be, but moving in the right direction. Um, For sure. Uh, curious, how would you say your relationship is with your, your father these days? You know, with the journey of him going through his uh, life and picking and choosing how he wants to live his life, 
Um, I think I forgave him a lot sooner than I did, you know, my mom. And that was, he chose to, um, you know, kind of go through a life where was, you know, what people would call kind of hardcore. He decided to live that. And when I mentioned about track, I had a lot of great people that are in my life that were father figures to me. So um, I can, you know, call and talk to him, you know, no problem. But it was a time when I graduated college and he was at my grandma's house and it was just a beautiful morning and uh, we don't live too far from USC. I mean, excuse me, uh, LAX airport. And um, he was drinking coffee and smoking a cigarette. And I was like, hey, I'm going to talk to you. And he said to me, I'm going to talk to you. You got a whole college degree now. And I was like, oh, okay. I said, well, I still speak English. <laughs> and he, you know, it was like, I still speak English. And I was like, uh, so this is how? And I was like, well, and I started saying stuff like, well, the sky is really blue today. Did the Lakers play last night? Like different stuff to just throw it out there. And then he just, you just realized that he just didn't want to talk. And I took that time, I think. And just realize, like, you know what? He's always shown me this person. He's he's mm-hmm. never changed. He's always been like that. And I just accepted that. Yeah. So even though he wasn't there, you know, it was times where me and my sister and my brother bought a sweater for him for Christmas. And his birthday's in August. We didn't see him until his birthday. Like, here's your Christmas present mm-hmm. in August. And it's a sweater. You know, like, stuff like that. And, um... I know like girls usually have like, oh, I'm a daddy's girl or this and that. I just became such a person that people knew that I was going through stuff and just loved on me anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, was this being nice to me, fed me, took me to places, made me smile, you know, with different things. And if if I didn't go through the childhood I went through, I would never experience all that love from so many people, mm-hmm. you know? all that attention, all that, that cheering me on, all that yeah. support, you know, from those people. So it's, it, it is what it is. Like I yeah. said, I feel like I, it took me a minute for my mom um, to really release and see her for where she, who she really is. And I just know that throughout the year, she tried her best. She did her absolute best, you know? And like I said, Yoko really helped me to release and see her in a different light. Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. And and it gets back to what we were you know we were talking about earlier with regards to like finding that light within you and I think uh, mm-hmm. you know one of the biggest things that people today you almost universally struggle with and you know that ends up manifesting itself in many ways uh, is all around am I worthy enough am I worthy of love right and I think that. Um, we live in a society that, in a structure of a society that makes it very difficult to break out of that hamster wheel you were talking about, right? And I think it's it's almost as if the system is kind of designed to suppress that inner light within you rather than really to help bring it out. Mm, okay, we're going to go there, huh? So in the journey of spiritual awakening you start to get pretty well at least i started to get i'm not gonna speak for everybody i started to get pretty disgusted with um how things are our grocery stores the fact that processed foods is not real food the fact that our fruits and vegetables are made in labs 
the fact that we're brushing our teeth with fluoride, but we need our third eyes to be open to get these messages to be to be the light. You know, like we need all of these things. And that led me to really go vegan. I was I was eating processed foods. I wasn't a soda drinker. I wasn't a, a heavy meat eater, but I did eat chicken and fish and turkey. And slowly I started to take that in my, my, my body. And then as I started to do that, my skin started to break out. I started to have a, a, a different effect on my, my body where people were like, oh, I'm vegan. My, my hair is soft and growing. My nails is growing. And it was just like a reverse effect to me. But then I went back to meat for a minute and I was like, oh, no, I can feel the animal death in a sense. Like, I know that's pretty deep, but it was just like, oh, no. Then I was like, OK, is this your thought process? You're disgusting yourself. out. I was like, oh, no, 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 I, I, I can't do meat. It's just too heavy for me. It takes forever to digest. My mood changes like I can feel the heaviness within my body. and. Once you start to realize like, hey, like literally you are what you eat or what people will say, one of my clients said this to me, what you eat in private, you show in public, Hmm. you know, and that was just a thing of like, oh, whoa, that's going to stick with me forever because that's true. You know, I can tell when people are heavy wine drinkers. I can tell when people, you know, are heavy meat eaters. I can tell if they're not releasing how they need to release, you know, with the lymphatic system being blocked. Um, learning more about herbs on this journey, learning about different vitamins and minerals and really realizing like all the food that same a gorilla eats. A gorilla does not get their protein from eating meat products. They're introduced to meat. They eat a lot of plants and vegetables. And look how big a gorilla is. I mean, huge. In intelligence, smart, like super smart, you know, and that intelligence of that animal is getting the the nurturing and the downloads and the DNA from what they're eating, you know, to connect, to work together, to get that energy, to get that sunlight, how everything starts to flow, how it's really internally connected, and um. Yeah, that's that that took me for a, a, a loop once I realized like, oh, my gosh, I'm doing it to myself for brushing my teeth. It took me forever to find the right toothpaste, mm-hmm. you know, because when you change um, in deodorant, I was OK with doing deodorant. But uh, with me massaging or me moving around, you know, one too many massages, you like, OK, a little sweaty. So it took me to at this point, I realized like, hey, I haven't even put on deodorant. I haven't even mm-hmm. bought deodorant. My body started to cleanse so much. Wow through yeah it was it was a it was a beautiful journey and that me going vegan was when did i go to barbados 2017 or 18 wow mm-hmm. yep yep that's cool um i had a question for you and i told it let me give me one second okay Well, anyway, yeah, I I, uh, I know it's crazy. I mean, it just it drives me wild just how how uh, um, our entire system with food and and big ag and big pharma is just so focused on the wrong things when it comes to health and and wellness and and self actualization of human potential. Mm-hmm. Well, that's their intention. 
They want us to stay sick. They want us to be sick. You know, they don't want us to ever get better. They're they're making us sick by everything, by putting it in the food. You know, by, I mean, the the water. I'm going through a huge water thing right now. I bought a whole water distillery where I can purify. I mean, I changed all the faucets. It's two faucets in a house that I'm still looking on Amazon and stuff. So I just, I think I just need to change the whole faucet so I can, you know, just really get the faucet and purify the water because the tap water washing my face, brushing my teeth with it is still disgusting. And the amount of stuff that came out the distillery with the water is just, it's, oh my gosh, it's gross. Mm -hmm. It looks like a whole, oh, so nasty. But the, you know, when we, when we know better, we do better, right? We, we know better, we realize. It's still when I go to the grocery store, even if it says organic, or even if I'm like, you know what, they saying it's organic. Or when I start to realize the numbers on the ones that we scan, like the four, the eight, the two, and realize like those numbers, that means that if it starts with the four and it says it's organic, it is not really organic. It's just the number. And we're thinking like, oh, it's the number that scans because that's how they keep track. No, they're letting us know in plain sight that it is not organic. Mm. Or the toothpaste, if you look on the back of your toothpaste and it had a green, a dark green strip or a red strip or a blue strip, they are telling us in plain sight that this is not healthy and we should not be brushing our teeth with it because it's the level that they put on there. Mm. You know, and it's, it really makes me feel uncomfortable sometimes when I go to a grocery store or if I got a shop. Going to the farmer's market now is like a, it's, it's a prize for me. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I knew you grew this. Are you growing this? Pe-? Like I literally asked you, do you grow this for pesticides? I know this happens. I know stuff happens because I really don't want to put that stuff in my body anymore. Yeah. And if they say no and I can taste it or if I have it on the counter or the fridge, it lasts so long it lasts the longest and that's how i'd be able to tell if you buy some bananas in the store the size of the different grocery stores you can tell how big it is how small it is and what size it was before or if the color just changes you know like oh we've had purple potatoes in the past and we don't even see those all the time Mm -hmm. you know and now they're all just starch starchy potatoes just white potatoes so um, I can talk on and on about food because when I came back from Egypt, I was just, I, I probably fasted for about a week or two because coming back to here and having all that fresh food we had and um, just getting, you know, the food being cooked as much fresh as they, they had it. Um, but when we went to Jordan, that's when I really seen like the difference, you know, how the food, how it tastes, how it looked and everything mm-hmm. like that. But um, it took me a minute to, like, come back here and really buy some stuff. I think I ate um, lentil beans. I make lentil beans and put some mushrooms and peppers and stuff in there. And I ate those. They did a lot of juicing. Bless. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, yeah, we could we could go on about food. But um, you brought up Egypt, so we got to get there for sure. So, uh, yes. Um, maybe let's talk about, you know, what – is holographic sound and, and how did you get involved in uh, in that movement? So I went to um, Barbados for the last time about 2016, I believe. And I was driving past the Addison Convention Center and I seen there was a lot of cars. So I was like, oh, let me see what this is about. I go in, pay, get the, um, the pamphlet of um, 
the speakers and one of them was Dr. Paul. And I was like, literally 10 minutes before he was about to start, he was setting up. There's this like little room, there's chairs there, there's a whole bunch of people like waiting, you know, and I'm like, okay, seat in the front between two people who I don't know. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and get in here, sit here. So he explained a little bit who he is and what he's about to do. And um, he started to sing and call in uh, Ascendant Masters. And I'm looking with one eye like, oh my gosh, who is Archangel Michael? Who is these people that he's saying? Is everybody else accepting this? And I'm like, okay, brother, be, be in your own head. Be, be in your space. Enjoy this. So I joined and, you know, enjoyed it. And he started to sing. And he started to use his voice to connect with the singing most. And it brought tears to my eyes. And of course, there was, I was the first one up there. There was 50 people there. You know, he's like, hey, you can talk to me more in my booth, you know. As soon as he packed up, I waited. I walked around. I was like, okay, I need to talk to him by myself. He got crystals and he got this stuff from Egypt. Who is this guy? So that was about five years ago that I was introduced to him at the Addison Convention Center. They don't even do it there. They they expanded so much. And so and by I got the way, for the listeners, she's talking about Dr. Paul Hubbard. He was on uh, on the show recently. So if you haven't listened to that episode, go check it out. Yes. Um, so with Dr. Paul, he uh, I talked to him and uh, he was telling me how he connects to the Hathars and how he connects. And he allows himself to just be, you know, a vessel to fill the energy through and just allow it to come out. And I was like, wow, this was so pure. He was, and I kept on asking him, like, why was I crying? <laughs> like, he was like, well, you just needed to release. You know, it wasn't no specific thing he could have told me. I just never experienced that before. Mm-hmm. And um, I got on his email list and everything he had been, he had come to Dallas. I would, you know, take time to go and see him at his booth or see if he has a, another one of those that I was drawn to. And um, just about every time he was here, it was just like a treat for me to go Sundays and see him. And last year, I missed the date to go to Egypt. Well, the year before, 2021, when he went. And I was kicking myself in the butt a little bit. And I was like, Brenda, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you go? What made you? And I didn't really have no excuse. I just had work, you know, and work. And I'm like, man, forget work. Like, I work too much. Like, I need to treat myself. <laughs> so when it came to, for real, to 2022, I um, I got into a space and a place where I was just like, you need to live. You need to let go. You need to have fun. And that's when uh, he came to Dallas. And I was like, hey, I talked to you when you were driving a, I think he was driving to Austin. Or, oh, no, he was driving a, I forget where he was driving, but he was driving to Colorado or something and just got done with it. And he was texting me back and he was like, call me around this time and we can talk then. So I was talking to him on his drive. He was giving a little more information. And so I knew he was going to be in Dallas. And I came and talked to him. I was like, I'm ready to make my payment. And he's like, oh, I was wondering what happened to you. And so I made my payment and it started the countdown, you know, the countdown of going to Egypt to see what magnificent energy and things and things he's talking about. You know, he just giving a little piece of it here and a little piece of there. And you might not hear the same story when he speaks, or you might hear the same story, but get more of that story. And each time I was around him, the information that he was um, he was putting out there, like he has this amazing crystal grid class. That's a, a basically a level one and level two, one day, I believe, or two days. And I missed that 
And I was like, oh my gosh, like I really was drawn to it, but I just it slipped my mind and I just, I didn't do it. And every time he was here for either a workshop or a course or an expo, I needed to be there. It was just something where I felt like he was my long lost brother. Like I felt like it was just um, a feeling of, and I'm still searching for the word because usually when people mm-hmm. talk about people, they're talking about all their love, how much they love them. I love him to death, but it's more of a a connection where it's like, Brenda, you're opening your third eye right now. You're working diligently on your third eye and your crown chakra. This is going to be the person who was going to give you all the downloads you need, mm-hmm. you know, and going to Egypt, I didn't know where we were going. I didn't know the itinerary. All I knew was that I had a plane ticket. I had somewhere to stay who was included. And I didn't have to plan anything. And it was the most blissful pilgrimage, vacation, trip that I could. I mean, still working on putting into words for me is, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's the most genuine feeling that all of us that was there together, what, 23, 26 people were going. It was like we knew each other mm-hmm. and we just fit and we just connected and we laughed and we assisted and we hugged and we loved on each other, you know, in, in a genuine light. Mm-hmm. And uh, with Dr. Paul, you know, hats off to him for taking the time to work on himself, to assist people, to teach, to have the patience for us. Um, I took his uh, sound healing level one and level two for Hologram Sound to he teaches us how to vocalize and use our, our throat, our voice, our tone yeah. Yeah. to go through the chakras to heal. And the information that he has, it's like, it's very easy to read and understand and to do it once you know how he's doing it. But how he has his four day course, he like really sets you up and makes mm-hmm. you practice and makes you practice again mm-hmm. and sets you up again to go through the steps for you to understand so you really don't miss it. It's not like, let me go ahead and buy some singing bowls and learn how to play this myself. This is a strategically healing journey where you assist people like literally and it works. It works. It's magnificent. And um, all the masters, all the Hathors, all the Ascended Masters are working with our higher self to bring that energy and trust herself. And I'm not a singer. I don't, I don't just going around la 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 and singing. No, I'm like, yes, I don't sound good. I only do that in the shower or the car every day. Nobody else needs to hear that. And it really, about day two, I was like, oh man, I'm like, <laughs> okay, let's go ahead and use a voice. And I joke and I started joking in a tone how he would teach us. And he looked at one of the, um, the girls that was with us um, that, you know, Tressa, and they just laughed at each other and it was like, okay, she's opening up. She's saying she's getting it. And I'm like, yeah, let's go and practice. And it was still some people by even by day four, they were still very, very, um, in their box, you know, sure. and I, you know, I had, yeah, I had to nest somebody like, Hey, you know what? We're here now. Like we know each other, but at this point, like open up, like you remember if you are assisting in healing somebody, you are healing yourself. Like, and that's the best gift that you can do for yourself. As you're, it's like literally that energy will, that holographic sound, that globe, that field that's around us is being circulated through the person or through the group and back to you. 
and that's a heavenly feeling. It really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. It's such an amazing class. So amazing. Um, and uh, and so, had you? Um, what do you think it was about Egypt that drew you to Egypt? You know, what drew me was the mystery, right, of ancient uh-huh. civilization. It was a mystery of like, first of all, how are these pyramids really being being built? Mm-hmm. Who got the answers? Let me go down there and see. Yeah, like and I'm on the case. Came... I got to go investigate this for myself. <laughs> for real, I got to see this. All these pictures. I'm going with a group, a person who's been going for 20 years. I couldn't be no safe, you know. I couldn't be safer with going, and um. Yeah, so I went, and what really drawn me to was just how it was so historic still after, I mean, thousands and thousands. I mean, I can really say millions at this point. It just goes on just to how everything was so preserved and the churches. And my my nephew had called me about the year before, and I helped him with, uh, he decided to write about the pyramids, the Giza pyramids. And he was so drawn to him, which made me a little more drawn to it. Sure. And, you know, and doing that research and talking to him and putting stuff on the internet. And I had a book I didn't realize that had some, you know, a topic in there about it. And um, just learning. And I was just like, man, these these pyramids are tombs. These pyramids not just have, you know, it's a it's a a spiritual sacrifice and a belief system that works that they do it. When people die and when the people that want to go with them and the animals and the gold and everything for them to go back into their chamber in the afterlife and have this stuff. And I was like, wow, that's such an honor. That's such a blessing. Or the father has a tomb and then the brothers and, the, you know, and they're all right next to each other. You know, I'm like, man, that's a big support system there. Uh-huh. And doing that research with him really opened my mind more. And I think that's when I really was mad at myself. Now I'm thinking about it where I was kicking myself down. Like, man, why didn't I go this year? So I knew next year I needed to go. Okay. Yeah. That's what drove me. And we awesome. still figuring out how the pyramids were built, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You got any ideas there? Sound. That's all I'm going to say. I feel like yeah. it was sound. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I'm actually wearing my onk necklace right now. And, uh, yes. hell Yeah. I um, love yours. Actually, you picked a good one. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're welcome. No problem. So are you familiar with Matias De Stefano? No. Can you tell me a little bit? He's, uh, he's got a uh, show on Gaia mm. called Initiation. Mm. Mm-hmm. But he um, was, was born remembering all of his past lives, including lives in Atlantis and Egypt. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and one and one of the things he talks about on the show was that the onk was actually uh, some type of sound, like some technological device that would play some sound frequency, and they would use onks on either side of the blocks to like levitate the blocks mm. with sound. I I can see that happening because a lot of the um the hieroglyphics that we see. Mm-hmm. A lot of them, they you know, I'm thinking about it. They mostly had the onks like in their their hands, mm, you know. Good point. And one hand would be up, or one hand would be to the side, you know, of giving that energy in a sense of what we would call Reiki now, you know, that type mm-hmm. of modality. Um, but 
Wow, that's interesting. I don't have Gaia um, because I don't really trust myself with um, <laughs> living life and going to work. I feel like <laughs> yeah. I be on there all the time. Like, it's so many interesting things. Yeah. I need to finish. I need to do something and then treat myself with watching something. I'll be stuck to the TV forever. I just don't trust myself right now yeah. because the information that they're putting out is like, you know that it's real when you watch it, right? You you can feel it. Like, you know that this, like, this is the truth. And we all want to know the truth about everything, right? We want to all remember who we are. We all want to remember our past life and where, what our past, present, and future is. You know, we all want to know that. And, um, I feel like every time we go through something, even Egypt, we were in a mystery school, you know, the mystery school of ascending, you know, in that school and learning the information that we did there to really help us remember or assist our higher self to helping us remember, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's that, that cycle of like the temples we walked in and some of them, I was like, it's just familiar. Like yeah. all I remember thinking about was the ISIS temple was like, this looks, this feels familiar, but it didn't look like this. You know, like I remember mm. like feeling that. And I was like, with a couple of them too. And it was just like, oh, wow. I know, or I go to one of the rooms that barely had nothing in it. And it's like, I know something is underneath here, you know, or I can feel something is here. Like there's more here, you know, in this space than just this. So um, e- Egypt is still unraveling a lot of stuff. There's a lot of dirt. There's a lot of sand. And I feel like a lot of stuff just needs to be dug up with a lot of care and a lot of love. So they're going to excavate, you know, the areas that they either have the money for or people come in and, you know, get the necessary tools and needs and staff to do it. Mm-hmm. So I wish I can just use my energy to move all the dirt and rise everything up. I mean, that would be amazing. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be? Get a couple of arcs and do that. <laughs> levitate, <laughs> levitate it off the ground. <laughs> Someday soon. I believe it. I know, right? Like we get all our powers back. We get all our energy back. Yeah. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. Mm-hmm. So were there any... um places we went in Egypt or or experiences you had there Jordan that were like particularly uh meaningful for you? Hmm. Uh, Jordan we've seen a lot but we we seen a lot but we really didn't see much, right? So mm-hmm. going to the Dead Sea and for it not to be on, on the itinerary um was nice to be in that water and float. Um, and then as I started to dig inside the Dead Sea, picking up the actual salt, like that looks like little crystals. Mm-hmm. Like it was it was pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, another place in Egypt was the fact that we went to go see um, the treasury in the monastery. That was awesome. And that was, that walk was everything for me. That was like, I was happy that we did that at the end. Like, I know that a lot of people didn't like the walk because it was either too much, but we did about 10 miles in that walk and it just did a great release for me, like for my body, um, just for my mind to be clear, uh, to walk around and see, you know, the donkeys and the camels and the people in the shops and, you know, the cave, you know, just everything. And it was, it was a hot day, but it wasn't too hot. Like it did get a little hot at one point. Right. And then once you got to the end, it was just like five more minutes to get to the top. 
you know, and us walking together, that was pretty nice, us talking mm -hmm. more. And at that point, I was in my head and focusing on like an intention that I wanted to feel from the energy. When you start joining me, when we started walking, like that was great. Uh -huh. And we stopped a couple places, you know, and just seeing the little shops and how people, and this how it was decorated too. They didn't need much, but the rug, the coverage, and then their, their, their trinkets, you know, to sell, you know, to, to people. And, or they might have the smoothies or, you know, their sandwiches or whatever it is. And it was, it was nice. But once we got and walked that five more minutes to the top and just seeing down, that was, that was pretty cool. Yeah. That was, I even felt myself like still, you was walking down before me and I, I felt myself just like still feeling like I'm high in a sense of just floating and walking down. And I just felt like my legs were jello you know and i was like wait are my legs tired from walking so much and i was like nah, no i still got a little more in me but it was just like that that being so high where we can see everything and coming down was just like now i could take a break now i can rest for a minute and then end up walking back you know so yeah. that was that was pretty cool did you did you get to ride one of the donkeys there not there but i did ride one uh for a minute at um Sakara. Oh, okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, you took yep. some amazing pictures. You did show me. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I was gonna do the camel um the la when we were at the pyramids, but that was the day I had food poisoning, so I was like not feeling great. Yeah, I don't think I would have got up on a camel not feeling good because that camel would have got all of that. Yeah, no. But you know, we stopped at the we did something that morning and then we um walked around took some pictures by the giza pyramid and then the sphinx is not too far from that as well so that's where i did the camel ride from the um giza to the sphinx and you know they only had one sternum on that ca on the camels and that never like not having two to balance myself mm -hmm. and then realizing that i am on like these camel hump hump you know like I couldn't get comfortable. So every mm -hmm. time that it walked, it walked <laughs> like it had high heels on. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, Brenda, don't play. Don't take no pictures. Don't do no videos. It was just like, oh, shoot, are we going down now? Like, it took me to a point where I was just like, okay, enjoy. Even though it was short, it was about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, um, you know, camera ride. It still was pretty nice to do it. Mm -hmm. So th that's about the one that I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um I don't know if you remember when we did the sunset at the Isis pyramid and we just watched it rise and then we took that boat back yeah, going yeah. to the Nubian. That was one of my favorites too because mm -hmm. um being in the Isis temple with all the cats that was there, I don't know if you really paid attention. That guy had like thirty cats there. And um I started to see as we were in the water of how that temple was underwater for so long because on the outside it was at least risen i don't know how deep it goes into the water but at least eight ten feet above water that i can see that it was you know mm. and feeling that fresh air and those kids coming on the side and singing and you know the nubian um guy singing as well that was pretty that, that was, was pretty awesome. nice and that energy just felt really clear over there too yeah did yeah. you do the balloon ride I did, yeah. 
Yeah, I thought so. So yeah, the balloon ride. Oh my, that was my first balloon ride ever. Um, Mine too. That was a beautiful. That was a beautiful day that we yeah. went as well. And at the guy, he showed us so much of how he was maneuvering. They know the hot air balloon and how he was turning us, and how you just felt, you know, kind of kind of safe with them being so high, mm. and just pointing out different things and showing us. I felt myself just being so happy and filled with gratitude. I started to cry. I was like, "This is so beautiful! Oh my gosh! Like we're in Asia, we're in Africa, in you know, in this hot air balloon, seeing everything for above." And mm. once once we went on different tours, we started to see places we went before, you know, like the Luxor. I forget the name where we did that was probably our first sunset where we were watching where we had to walk up we had the golf cart and we walked around and we walked up into the temple. Oh, I know what you're talking it, about. Um It was that day. Yeah, yeah. That was uh hot soup. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Hot hot chicken soup. That's hot chicken that. soup. That's why I see why people remember it because I couldn't remember. Yep, that's where it was. Mm -hmm. That was a beautiful place, too. Mm -hmm. That was a beautiful place. Yeah. It was all just so stunning. Just so much history, so much mystery. You're right. It's just unbelievable. It really was unbelievable. He has a, Dr. Paul has a trip in April. Are you going? No, but I am going to to go go back to Tepe in uh, May. Yes, I'm yeah. so happy for you. Wow! Thank you. Did you? You're welcome. Are you going with friends or? No, it's actually. Uh, I think kind of similar trip. It's it's um, hosted by some of the folks who are on Gaia's uh, Ancient Civilization show. Wow. Uh huh. Wow. Yeah. See, you got me wanting to download the app like right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny you say that though, because like when I first got a subscription, yeah, I was binging it for like months straight. It's crazy and they've got so much content yes i've seen i've seen the content that's why i'm like i don't trust myself right now let me get through <laughs> a couple of these projects and then maybe i take a little bit off because if i'm working and i'm watching tv and i gotta get up i mean i'm gonna be so tired you know yeah. doing it to myself again through the day and if i don't sleep i'm not a happy person so I don't even want to, you know, I don't even want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but the information, I know everybody keeps on telling me now, like, forget Netflix, forget Hulu. It's all about Gaia at uh-huh. this point. Uh-huh. Like, literally. So um, I'm going to break down and get it, but I'm going to I'm going to have to cancel um, a couple of subscriptions so I can just have one and not focus on, you know, anything else. If it's not on sense. Gaia, then I don't need to be, you know, a part of it. I probably have at least seven subscriptions like Disney and HBO and stars, you know, got to realize what am I really having these for, you know? Right. I I agree. And what I've kind of, uh, I don't know, come to see with a lot of the mainstream media and entertainment companies is just all the gratuitous violence and sex that they throw into everything. Mm -hmm. It's like, why? Yeah. Or it gets a little like, uh, not of the light scene and you're like oh yeah that took a turn i don't even want to watch this anymore well that came from you know left field with that okay that okay you know and you because now when you're awakening you start to break down everything right and you already know what they're really telling you in the episode or the series and it's like so yeah 
That's why I said I wouldn't be able to because once you're exposed and activated to that, just don't go back. Yeah, it's so funny you say that. Like, so, so the original Game of Thrones, right, was like my favorite show of all time. Um, and then I was watching the new the new show House of Dragon and like the season finale, right? And this is I think right after Roe v. Wade gets overruled. She she like the main character, the main woman has like a, this really really disgustingly graphic like aborted birth and a show it all and it's just like bloody and graphic and i'm like all right i'm out like that's that's it for me like her whole private part uh not that but they showed the, oh. the dead baby and and you're like this is the season finale of what's probably the highest rated show on tv right now right like why is this an image wow. that we're choosing to f- throw in front of everyone's face yeah that would have been very disturbing to me you know um I got into Game of Thrones, who's he gonna laugh at me? Probably season six or five. I wasn't a person who watched it all the time. It was a friend mm. who I did a couple of events with, and she was like, Do you watch a Game of Thrones? And I was like, No, but I got a fire stick. And then she, every, I don't know, every Saturday she had come over and we had catch up and watch. And uh, that's how I got into it. And so from there, <laughs> um, I was hooked. And then, you know, it ended, it, it you know, not so great. And then we have, you know, the, the house of dragons and i watched maybe one or two episodes but i keep falling asleep on it so i'm like it's not my time to watch it right now so but i hear you it's it's the scenes and the messages that they throw in there is like i don't know for you but it's disturbing to me to where i don't feel comfortable to even supporting or watching it anymore once it's, it's exposed and you're like um when the whole uh i don't even know if i could say this but the whole uh scandal with um the huge company fashion company oh, Balenciaga. Which, yeah, yeah and they um i started to see something that i was watching was um promoting that in the show and i was like yeah yeah it's everywhere and i started seeing it even if it wasn't funny funny things you know it's just like whoa this is interesting so maybe that's the conversation i needed to have with you so i can just cancel everything right now and go ahead and put gaia you know <laughs> <laughs> on the phones and on the tvs i think you you you've convinced me i love it i love it well glad that uh, <laughs> made a difference today <laughs> busting the oligarchy one uh, one dollar at a time right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome <laughs> <laughs> uh, well brenda this has been so much fun catching up um so for folks who want to learn more about uh now and zen body works where should they go to learn more oh learn where, they, where should you guys go where is the best thing to go i mean go to the website www.nowandzenbodyworks.com or you can go to my social media nowandzenbodyworks.com i look forward to meeting and seeing everybody for free to reach out the me or jordan and let us know what you think about the show leave a comment subscribe all the fun stuff i love it and also we forgot to talk about your book that's coming out oh my gosh i started to write a book this january i didn't know i was going to write a book but i woke up and my ancestor said you need to write a book and uh-huh. i said write a book really me write a book I'm great at math. I'm not great at English. I'm the person who's writing stuff and putting fragment sentences and missing the dots and the commas. Like, I'm that person. 
I'm not a person using there, there, they are, I'm all wrong. You mad at me. Like, I'm not a person posting something misspelling stuff. And once I sat down with it and I said, well, where do I start? And it's, I started a little bit about my childhood, running track and going and starting my a massage career during the recession. So it's going to be on Amazon. Um, we're still with that the last process of proofreading and make sure that there's no misspelled words, no fragments, that it looks and sounds good to the people that actually enjoy reading and can pick stuff up very easily. And um, Amazon, next month, that's where we're at. I'll also be doing an um, event in New York for anybody who is in New York. Um, February 16th, I'll be speaking at an event about lymphatic massages in my book and everything like that. It'll be super fun. Awesome. And then, New York uh, City? Yeah. New York City Times Square at the W. Uh-huh. Yep. So that's going to be um, that's going to be fun. I haven't been to New York in a while and I'm speaking at an event and just utilizing my voice. Yeah, that's my words, you know, letting people know what I do and be seen, you know, that's where I'm at in life. I love like, it. L- allowing my light to shine bright, so bright, so divinely bright, you know, a bright sun ray, a bright sunshine, <laughs> sunlight so bright. I love it. I mean, you know, and to, to our discussion about, you know, this, the images that are being portrayed on the in the media, right? I think we need more people like you shining light, shining bright and, and you know, letting people see that there is good and, and beauty and light and love in the world, right? That it doesn't all have to be these images of, you know, death and destruction and, and all of that. Yeah, a lot of chaos out there. But it's kind of like the same thing we talked about earlier about the food. Not only do they use the foods or lotion or toothpaste or water. They do the same thing of our phones, our social media, and our commercials and things that we watch. They, the control thing of them, always wanting to embed it in, the, in us and think that this is what normal is, you know? But as we expose ourselves to different things and our third eye awakens, we know that it doesn't look right and it doesn't feel right and it doesn't have to be like that. So I appreciate you. Like I appreciate you shining your light so bright and saying that, gosh darn, I'm going to go ahead and create a podcast and asking me to be in your podcast and just to be able to talk to you. You know, we, you know, talk and text here and there, but to have a conversation with you and be so genuine. I appreciate you so much for allowing my light to shine bright through your light. Well, Brenda, I love you. Thank you so much for coming on and and sharing your story. I've, I've had so much fun chatting with you. Yes, I love you too, Jordan. All right, have a great evening. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. In this discussion, Brenda and I talked about our trip to Egypt and what had attracted us to the country. The mystery, the magic, the hidden knowledge. Here are five of my favorite mysteries about Egypt and theories I'm currently considering for each. Mystery number one, how old is the Sphinx? The field of Egyptology was thrown for a loop when, in 1991, two researchers posed compelling evidence that challenged the accepted answer to this exact question. John Anthony West, an independent scholar unknown to professional Egyptologists, and Dr. Robert Schock, a tenured geologist at Boston University, argued that part of the Sphinx enclosure showed clear signs of rainwater erosion. 
This was distinct from the rest of the Sphinx, which showed wind erosion. To the chagrin of the incredulous Egyptology and archaeology communities, the story was picked up and received widespread media coverage. To make matters worse for the existing paradigm, two years later, NBC published a documentary by West titled Mystery of the Sphinx, which was seen by millions of Americans. Why is evidence of rainwater erosion on the Sphinx so important for our understanding of its history? And why was it so threatening to the accepted narrative of archaeology? Here's Charlton Heston, the narrator of that documentary, explaining why. The Great Sphinx of Egypt, keeper of the ancient mysteries, guardian of the ancient secrets. The Sphinx is considered to be the greatest statue on Earth. Good evening, I'm Charlton Heston. Every hundred years or so, an idea comes along that can shake the world. An idea so revolutionary that at first no one believes it could be true. When Galileo showed evidence that the Earth moved around the sun, the authorities arrested him. Many people refused to believe that the Wright brothers could fly even after they'd been doing it for two years. But eventually, if the evidence is convincing, a theory can be accepted as common knowledge. What you're about to see could be history in the making. Tonight, we go to Egypt to examine the controversial theories of John Anthony West. West and his team of scientists challenge our long-held views about the origins of the Great Sphinx. They suggest that the Sphinx was carved before Egypt became a desert nine to 10,000 years ago. It's remarkable that for thousands of years, the evidence has been in plain sight, yet till now, no one has recognized its significance. If West's theories prove to be correct, the implications are staggering. We've been taught that the people who inhabited Egypt during that early period were primitives who survived by hunting and scavenging for food. John West believes that this view is incomplete. He feels that an entire chapter of man's early history is missing. West's team has uncovered new evidence which suggests that we're descendants of an unknown earlier civilization, an advanced culture capable of incredible technological feats. Tonight we'll examine this evidence to see if man's early history needs to be rewritten. Could the legends of Atlantis be true? Egypt, land of mystery, a symbol of her enigmatic culture, the Great Sphinx. For thousands of years, travelers have visited Egypt and stood in awe of these great monuments. Of all ancient civilizations, none has left behind such a wealth of artistic and architectural mastery. These magnificent temples were the inspiration for the artists of ancient Greece and Rome, who in turn passed their knowledge on to us. But who inspired the Egyptians in the first place? History has no answer. On the easternmost boundary of the Sahara Desert, six miles west of Old Cairo, the Sphinx and surrounding pyramids rest on the edge of the Giza Plateau. 
240 feet long, the length of a city block, 60 feet high, the height of a six-story building. The Sphinx has the body of a lion and the head of a man. It was carved in one piece out of solid limestone bedrock. It rests in its own enclosure. Facing east to catch the first rays of the rising sun. Egyptologists who specialize in ancient Egyptian dynasties now believe that the Sphinx was carved by the Pharaoh Chephren in his own image 4,500 years ago. Chephren is the Pharaoh who is credited with building the second of the three major pyramids in the Giza Plateau during what's known as the Old Kingdom period. For over half its known life, the Sphinx has been buried up to its neck in sand. Despite this protection from the elements, the body of the Sphinx is deeply eroded. Although it's been dug out and repaired many times, nothing has ever been found to tell us who built the Sphinx or when. This is John Anthony West, author and independent Egyptologist. While researching the work of French mathematician Schwaller de Lubitsch, he made a chance discovery that would change his life. Schwaller made the simple observation that the Sphinx had been eroded by water, not by wind and sand, as traditionally believed. These are two very different types of erosion. Water in the Sahara Desert. There's been no significant rainfall in the Sahara for nine to 10,000 years. West was the first person to grasp the implications of this. If the Sphinx was eroded by water, it had to be at least 9,000 years old. The deep erosion is easy to see, but it takes an expert to identify its cause. Through some friends, I had an introduction to a very well-known Oxford geologist, and I went into him with a very simple question. On the basis of a clear photograph alone, could he, as a geologist, tell the difference between weathering by water and weathering by wind and sand? The answer was cautiously expressed as a general rule, yes. I asked him if he didn't mind if I play a bit of a trick on him, and what I did was I took a photograph of the Sphinx, and I masked off the head and the paws, and I asked him what did he think that was responsible for that weathering? And he looked at it a moment and said, well, unquestionably, water. And then I stripped the masking tape off, and he looked at it a minute, and he said, oh. While the geological community was fascinated by Shock and West's research, those in archaeology and Egyptology were less pleased with these revelations. Why would they be so resistant to considering a well-researched, albeit unconventional theory, as a discussion for another time? But here is the irreverent West describing the fallout that ensued. So then we broke this news to the, to the because now I had Shock behind me, to the GSA, that's Geological Society of America's annual meeting in San Diego. This was 91, that's 25 years ago. And that's, the, that's you might say it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the Super Bowl of, of geology. Anybody with anything new or anything good or challenging to say uh, presents it at the GSA. And Shock and I spent 
a whole afternoon at my place trying to make this sound boring so that we didn't so we didn't scare them away but they still understood that there was new, there was the possibility of, of news through this and sure enough we were the we were the really we were the the um, we were the head of the show. I mean, with his New York Times and all the scientific magazines. I remember the massive coverage. Yeah, I mean, we hadn't even met then yet, yeah, but yeah, it was huge. Sphinx could be coverage. much older than yeah, experts say. That's yeah. right, and uh, that really pissed the Egyptologists off. Oh, they were furious <laughs> about this. And in fact, this is where we come to in the story. The the science editor of the Boston Globe, Chuck teaches at Boston University, interviewed us by telephone. He wasn't there personally. First, he interviewed Shock, and Shock was his usual polite academic self who explained carefully what it was and why they were that angry. And then he interviewed me, and he said, Well, you know, the, the geologists are all in favor of this. What gets them so furious? Because you can't imagine what the things that they were calling us. And I said, Well, look, this is about the weathering patterns in rocks. And when it comes to the weathering patterns in rocks, the opinions of Egyptologists and archaeologists is no more valid than the opinions of proctologists. And he published this. And in the Boston Globe. And this did not have the conciliatory effect upon the archaeology department of Boston University. And, and there was a a furious character assassination of Shaka was really awful by this woman who doesn't know that we're coming at her pretty quickly. Um, and she wrote this scandalous character assassination of Shaka. And I said, oh, Shaka, you can't let him get away with that. This is, okay, it's an in-house Boston BU paper, but still, you know, you can't let her get away with it. Oh, no, he said, let it slide, it'll pass. And I said, well, you do mind if I write her? And so she said, no, you go ahead, long as it's just from you and not from the university. So I did, and I said, you know, I understand you guys took umbrage at uh, this comparison of Egyptologists and archaeologists to proctologists. And I said, I've got to tell you that the proctologists didn't like it either. They, 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 they said their job was to cure sick assholes. They didn't like, didn't like being compared to them. <laughs> West spent the next several decades continuing his research on ancient Egypt and helping connect its mysteries to the public. He passed away in 2018, but his decades of research helped to inspire other researchers like Graham Hancock to re-examine the official story of antiquity. The deeper they've looked, the more incredible their findings. So just how old is the Sphinx exactly? I'll return to this question again, but here are some initial thoughts from Dr. Schock and Mr. West. Many archaeologists and Egyptologists have been highly resistant to my ideas. If my findings are in conflict with their theories, maybe it's time for them to reevaluate their theories about the rise of civilization. I'm not saying that the Sphinx was built by Atlanteans or people from Mars or extraterrestrials. I'm just following the science where it leads me, and that leads me to conclude that the Sphinx was built much earlier than previously thought. Schock and I have a friendly debate going about the age of the Sphinx. Schock holds to his 5,000 to 7,000 BC date, mainly by taking the most conservative view allowed by the data to hand. 
I think for a variety of both intuitive and scholarly reasons that the date is much, much older. Schock isn't even in disagreement about this, but he prefers to take the most conservative view. I think that when and if our isotopic analysis and other areas that we're working in provide a date that, or provide data that we think is trustworthy, that date is going to be very, very old indeed. I think older than 10,000 BC, really older than 15,000 BC, and it wouldn't even surprise me if the date was a lot older than that. I, I really do believe that when we get a date, it's going to be something so staggering that nobody's going to believe the data. Mystery number two, how are the Giza monuments built? The megaliths constructed in the Sphinx enclosure and the Great Pyramids of Giza, how are they moved? Here again, the mainstream answer of mechanical leverage using ramps and pulleys doesn't hold up under scrutiny. The ancient Egyptians were masters at building with large blocks of stone. Visitors from all around the world are still impressed by these magnificent structures built thousands of years ago. The Great Pyramid of Giza is perhaps the most famous example. Two and a half million blocks of limestone are stacked 480 feet high. The average weight of the blocks is two and a half tons. The interior chambers are lined with blocks which weigh up to 70 tons each. As impressive as these numbers are, there's an even greater mystery, which until now has been completely overlooked. In order to expose the body of the Sphinx, enormous blocks of limestone were quarried out. Block by block, the stone was removed as the lion's shape took form. I'm standing here on the walls of the Sphinx enclosure. This is a massive limestone temple that was built contemporaneously with the Sphinx. We know that because we can look at the rocks that this is made out of, and we see that it has exactly the same layers, exactly the same lithology. In fact, we can determine that these blocks came right out of the Sphinx enclosure. They actually carved out massive blocks, which they moved to in front of the Sphinx and reassembled as the Sphinx temple. And the size of these blocks really is enormous. How were they able to move these huge blocks with, quote, primitive technology? How were they able to assemble them into this temple? It really awes and inspires the imagination. Some of these blocks measure 30 feet long, 10 feet high, and 12 feet wide. They each weigh 200 tons. That's roughly the weight of a diesel locomotive. Nowhere else in all of Egypt are blocks this size used in the construction of temple walls. The question is, how were these giant blocks moved onto the site, then raised and precisely fitted into position 50 feet above the ground? Egyptologists maintain that it was done with ramps, levers, ropes, and a lot of manpower. To put the problem in perspective, John went to a Long Island construction site to see how today's engineers lift and maneuver heavy loads. A crew of 20 men have been working for six weeks to prepare for the lift of one object, a 200-ton boiler. This crane is one of the largest land-based cranes in existence. Its boom reaches 220 feet into the air. 
A concrete counterweight of 160 tons is required to keep it from tipping over. A second crane was needed to precisely fit the boiler into place. I'm looking at what you're showing me here, these pieces, and uh, looking at the distance involved, I don't know if we would be able to pick if any of these are 200 tons from, from the position that I see available to us. I mean, I've looked at these over the years because in my business, you know, when we pick heavy loads, we look to see how heavy loads were picked by other people before us. Uh, and seeing how they move these heavy blocks, 200 ton blocks, possibly thousands and thousands of years ago, I have no idea how they did this job. It's a mystery. It'll probably always be a mystery to me and maybe to everybody. If modern engineers have a problem maneuvering blocks of that size, how were the ancient builders able to do it? Was it possible to move 200-ton blocks into place using simple levers, as Egyptologists suggest? Or did they possess a technology that our science is only beginning to understand? A technology based on the vibrations of sound? Some of you may remember this famous commercial. Can the amplified voice of Ella Fitzgerald shatter this glass? Believe it. Clearly, sound can affect matter, but can it levitate a heavy object? The scientists at a space-age research facility outside of Chicago have a different definition of levitation. Acoustic levitation is a non-magical way of floating an object in mid-air using very loud sound. The levitation that we do is done by having one or two sound sources and a reflector. And the sound bounces off the reflector and on its way back down, the two sound fields pass through each other. In that region where there's the interference of those two sound fields, there are little wells that you can actually levitate small objects the size of a pea. And I'd love to go to Egypt, but lifting the black is uh, a little beyond what, uh, what we can do currently. The frequency required is much lower than we can produce at sufficient intensity, and the reflector that you'd have to have above the object would be uh, approximately a quarter of a mile across. Today's most advanced science can levitate a small rock, but nothing that compares with the blocks in the Sphinx and Valley temples. The fact remains, these 200-ton blocks of stone were somehow raised and fitted together with great precision. No one today knows just how this was done. While auditive or acoustic levitation was possibly involved in the movement of these massive stones, it is certainly not the only viable theory as to how these monuments were built. It's also important to remember that these were massive construction projects that have been reconstructed and rebuilt numerous times throughout the ages. Therefore, it's quite possible that different technologies were used at various points in time. Another option for the construction of the Giza monuments is telekinesis. As I've consistently argued, there is substantial evidence to suggest our universe is fundamentally consciousness-based and that matter itself is an illusion. This esoteric knowledge of consciousness was well known by the ancient Egyptians. 
It is therefore possible that they knew how to access latent psychic abilities, including telekinesis, precognition, telepathy, and past life regression. Abilities we in our current materialistic paradigm tend to relegate to the realm of the pseudoscientific and the impossible. Here's Hancock writing on this possibility in his latest book, America Before, The Key to Earth's Lost Civilization. In my view, the science of the lost civilization was primarily focused upon what we now call psi capabilities that deployed the enhanced and focused power of human consciousness to channel energies and manipulate matter. Although psi research is still undertaken at a small number of universities and institutes in Britain, the United States, and Russia, it is generally ridiculed and sidelined by modern mainstream scientists. This categorically does not mean that there's nothing to sigh, but instead speaks volumes about the nature of science today, which is heavily dominated by materialist thinkers whose reference frame has little room for spooky action at a distance. The phrase, which was Einstein's, refers specifically to the paradoxes of quantum entanglement, but applies equally well to other alleged non-local phenomena such as telepathy, communication from one person to another of thoughts, feelings, desires, etc., involving mechanisms that cannot be understood in terms of known scientific laws. Remote viewing, the practice of seeking impressions about a distant or unseen target purportedly using extrasensory perception. Telekinesis, the movement of a body caused by thought or willpower without the application of physical force, and healing powers whereby patients are successfully cured of their ailments by non-physical and non-medicinal means. Mystery number three, what is under the Sphinx's left paw? When Weston Shock had the opportunity to do seismographic testing to check for anything buried under the Sphinx, they found some interesting discoveries. Archaeological excavation is expensive, and permission to dig in Egypt is difficult to obtain. How could West and his team look beneath the sand without digging? The seismograph is connected to listening devices called geophones, which are placed in the ground at precise intervals. A metal plate is hit with a heavy hammer, sending shock waves deep into the ground. These shockwaves reflect off the rock layers of different densities. They're received by the geophones and then recorded by the seismograph. The final results give a graphic representation of what lies hidden beneath the surface. Dr. Thomas Dobecki has been a professor at the Colorado School of Mines and he's worked extensively in the petroleum industry. He's a professional engineering geologist and geophysicist. His specialty is high-resolution seismography. Initially, our primary purpose for conducting the seismic surveys in and around the Sphinx was to look for buried evidence for ancient civilizations. To this end, we were able to locate unusual cavities that could be chambers within the Sphinx enclosure. But over and above this, we were also able to map the pattern of weathering depth within the limestone. Here's West on the Joe Rogan experience discussing the seismographic analysis over 25 years later. So what you, you hit that thing and it makes a sound. And uh, yeah, the sound it's a seismograph. Really, uh, the sound goes into the earth. Interesting. Next, the next slide is what we found. And there it is. See, A, that's, that's the, that's the, that is a cavern or a chamber or of some sort. It's a void underneath the bedrock. Mm. Um, and that's the so-called Hall of Records. People think that I, that's Edgar Casey is talking about. We're iffy about it, other than that, the seismograph does not know how to channel 
So it just says what's there. And what's so it there, knows there's a void. It knows there's a void. And at the very back, it's a little bit, you don't see, it's the edge of the sea. See, at the very end, by the rump, mm-hmm. that is also a chamber. And that's absolutely, it's known that it's there. And this gives you the same profile seismologically. But there's no known way to get into these things? Yeah, the back one, there's a way. It's a very rough cut chamber. And there's a, just behind there, one of those stones, if you pull it away, and you can get in. And it's a room... Uh, Rough, it's very rough, but about the size of the room that we're in here, the studio. And that's a room. So if that's a room, then it stands to reason, that seismographical reason anyway, that A is also a, a cavern or a grotto or a construction or something. So what we're looking at with A, when you see all those circles around it and the, the, the rough shape of it, that's the shape that they believe the room is. So it would be similar to the one that's at the rump where it would be like kind of a sort rough of room. Sort of. Well, the, the seismographic, those are the, I forget, topo lines or something that give you the, the depths mm-hmm. that the thing is at. And but it's not like a square, 90-degree angle well, cut. Well, it, it, it's roughly rectangular, hmm. says Tom, Tom Dobecki, who is our geo, geophysicist who was doing that work. So what's the holdup as far as examining that? Well, two. One, they don't want to be wrong. Um, two, that it's very difficult to do. It's under about five, about 15 feet of bedrock, that cabin. The hmm. Sphinx is, A, probably the, the most let's say, the, the, the archaeological hotspot of the universe. I mean, nothing is more open to, you know, excitement and all the rest of it as the Sphinx. Um, secondly, the water level has risen so that that whole chamber is probably filled with water now. So anything that isn't stone would have been obliterated long ago. Oh, imagine that, if you got down there and you found wet scrolls. Well, maybe, or <laughs> or stone something or another. Right. But in theory, you could put a little fiber optic something down there and study it. Mm. But they don't want to be wrong about this. And anything invasive, the Sphinx is really in disastrous condition. So any little vibration or something like that could, you know, could could conceivably damage it. I don't worry about these things. The geology is much more important as far as I'm concerned. And my guess is that when we finally break open the portcullis and capture all of the, you know, all of the, capture all of the, 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 the quackademics that, that it protects at the moment, at that point when it gets, when it is, when it is accepted, and these things do happen, this is this idea whose time has come, when it has come, Things change, and at that point, maybe then the funding shows up, and the and the and the determination comes up to actually look into that void or chamber and see if it is indeed a void or chamber, and if there's something in there. When West mentions Edgar Casey, the Hall of Records, and channeling, he's referring to the American psychic who lived from 1877 to 1945. Casey, also known as the Sleeping Prophet claimed to be a clairvoyant who could channel past lives while in a trance-like state. His work has been documented in over 14,000 readings. In 1932, Casey prophesied that a secret chamber beneath the Sphinx containing an ancient hall of records would be discovered sometime around the year 2000. Not surprisingly, Casey has been ridiculed and dismissed by mainstream Egyptologists, archaeologists, and materialists. He made astounding claims, including that an Atlantean flying vehicle is buried under the Sphinx and was used to build the the Great Pyramid, as well as travel underground tunnels to habitate areas of inner Earth. 
I certainly don't claim to vouch for the accuracy of any of his prophecies and can understand if the listener dismisses his ideas entirely. Nevertheless, it is an interesting coincidence what Weston Schock's research turned up in the 90s and as West noted, seismographs don't know how to channel. So what could be in the Hall of Records? Here's Graham Hancock's perspective. We think that all the indications suggest that a time capsule was deliberately concealed at Giza in Egypt with the intention that it should be found one day, a time capsule that would abolish all ambiguity over this matter and make it absolutely certain of what had gone before and of what we have forgotten. But a time capsule that was not intended to be found by barbarians, that was hidden away very carefully to be found, as the ancient texts say, by the fully worthy. Perhaps that's who we are. Perhaps that time has come. Perhaps that's the decision and the awe-inspiring prospect that we confront in the near future. Mystery number four. Who built the Giza monuments? This question inevitably brings us back to our first mystery. When were the Giza monuments built? Mainstream archaeology and Egyptology claim the Sphinx was carved around 2600 to 2500 BC to represent the dynastic pharaoh Shephren, also known as Khafre, who is said to have built the second Great Pyramid of Giza as well. The Great Pyramid, meanwhile, is said to have been built by Khafre's father, Pharaoh Khufu, as his tomb. However, the stating of the original construction of the dynastic period does not hold up under scrutiny, the water erosion on the Sphinx enclosure being just the start of the discrepancies. Dynastic Egypt lasted from about 3000 BC until 300 BC when Egypt was conquered by Alexander the Great. One curiosity of the dynastic period is that the architectural and technological capabilities of these ancient Egyptians appeared to have declined throughout the 2700-year period. If civilizations develop linearly and innovation compounds, wouldn't we expect the opposite? Independent researchers increasingly conclude that these structures weren't built by, Kof- by Khufu and Khafre, but rather restored by them, and that the original builders of these megalithic monuments came from a far more ancient civilization. But just how ancient? Edgar Casey prophesied that the Sphinx was built around 10,500 BC. Graham Hancock and Robert Baval independently arrived at this same dating, but for entirely different reasons. Baval's Orion correlation theory dated the Sphinx's construction based on archaeastronomical alignments. This dating represents an important period of Earth's history for two reasons. A, 10,500 BC took place during the most recent age of Leo, and B, 10,500 BC was smack dab in the middle of the Younger Dryas period. The Age of Leo. Every approximately 26,000 years, the Earth cycles through what is known as the Great Year, or the precession of the equinox. The Earth wobbles at a slight tilt like a top, 23.43 degrees to be precise. Because of this wobble, the position of the Sun on the first day of spring, the vernal equinox, slowly shifts westward around the sky. The sun's position cycles through 12 constellations, the zodiacal constellations. The sun is located within each constellation for a period of about 2,150 years, and we are currently in an age of Aquarius. The most recent age of Leo took place around 10,500 to 8,000 BC. Here's Hancock explaining why the age of Leo is significant for the dating of the Sphinx. The ancient Egyptians were an astronomical civilization. Their focus was on the heavens. And uh, I believe that the first time Zeptepi can be defined astronomically 
And it's, uh, there's a very specific moment. It's not exactly a moment. It's more an epoch of about a thousand plus years. When at dawn on the spring equinox, the lion sphinx would have gazed directly at its own celestial counterpart, the constellation of Leo. In the sky of around 10,500 BC, the sphinx would have gazed directly at the constellation of Leo at dawn on the spring equinox. And then as the sun rose, something else happens. Uh, we see the constellation of Orion uh, crossing the meridian due south of the pyramids. And the three belt stars of Orion are in the same pattern as the pyramids on the ground. And this is where I need to pay tribute to the amazing work of my great friend and colleague Robert Boval, who is the originator of the Orion correlation theory. Um, and uh, I just want to be clear that this is a kind of image of the first time. This is how it looked, how it's defined astronomically. The Younger Dryas Period. Around 10,835 BC, planet Earth underwent an incredible amount of change. After thousands of years of rising temperatures during the last ice age, something dramatic happened. Global temperatures, as we now know from Greenland ice core samples, dropped dramatically for a period of about 1,200 years. A growing coalition of scientists supports the theory that this massive temperature shift was triggered by a cosmic impact, the Younger Dryas impact theory, although this theory remains hotly contested by mainstream archaeology. At the end of this period, a subsequent event, Meltwater Pulse 1b, triggered a dramatic rise in temperatures, kicking off our present Holocene epoch. The Earth experienced heavy rainfalls globally during the first several thousand years of the Holocene during the Age of Cancer from about 8,000 to 6,000 BC. West, Schock, and Hancock had proposed the Sphinx's Wainwrighter erosion occurred during this Age of Cancer. Whatever triggered the Younger Dryas, its impacts were absolutely devastating. Three isolated northern hemisphere glaciers were destabilized, three-fourths of megafaunal mammals became extinct, and the Clovis population of North America underwent a dramatic population decline. The ice sheet destabilization resulted in global flooding that could have hypothetically wiped out a seafaring, island-based civilization whose land was now underwater. Cultures all around the globe have myths related to a great flood that wiped out most of humanity. Could these stories be grounded in a true event that occurred at the beginning of the Younger Dryas period? While the astronomical alignment with Leo supports the 10,500 BC dating of the Sphinx, the fact that this also occurred in the middle of the Younger Dryas period is less clear-cut. The Younger Dryas was clearly a critical point in the history of humanity. However, does it make sense that a few survivors of a pre-Diluvian civilization living in this hostile environment would dedicate the time and resources to build these massive structures. Could they have built the Giza monuments at the beginning of the Age of Leo in anticipation of the coming impact event? Could the monuments have already been there, but the survivors managed to fill the Hall of Records during this hostile, younger driest period? Were the survivors of this pre-Diluvian civilization able to travel the globe, transferring what remained of their knowledge to the surviving hunter-gatherers after the Earth's climate recovered from turmoil? And if the Sphinx and Giza pyramids are older than even 10,500 BC, how much older could they be? 
I remember we've had, we've had conversations about the Sphinx many times, and mm. I know that you are open to the possibility that the Sphinx is even much older. Much older, yeah, I'm, I'm convinced of it. I think, you're, I think you're persuaded by the astronomical argument, mm. but you make the point that the age of Leo recurs every 26,000 yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the Egyptian texts themselves, the Palermo Stone and the Turin Papyrus, that talk about these earlier periods and give the regnal years of these supposedly mythical kings, and when you put them all together, which is what Schroller did, you get 34, 36,000 years, so we're closing in on an earlier age of Leo. Here's a team of researchers from the Gaia show Ancient Civilizations discussing this possibility of a much older Sphinx. In ancient Egypt, every temple, in theory, had what were known as foundation texts or building texts. And what these were is how the first ever temple in Egypt was established. And there was always a story that went with it to do with the, the beginnings of uh, Egyptian civilization and the age of the gods, which was known as Zeptepe, which is generally interpreted as meaning the first time or the first occasion. And the most complete form of this foundation story is found at Edfu in southern Egypt. We would only know about it for the work of Eve Raymond, who wrote an extraordinary book called The Mythical Origin of the Egyptian Temple. And it's the only book to date that breaks down all of these foundation texts and shows that they're actually based on a real history of Egypt during what she describes as pre-dynastic times. Now, observing the astronomical map at 10,500 before Christ, I noted a key point. The Orion constellation is not perfectly aligned with the pyramids. If we assume that the Zeptepi is an ancient time during which the gods lived on Earth, we must also say that on the Giza Plateau somewhere, there is a monument that refers to the stars Cyrus in connection with the goddess Isis. So initially when Robert Bavall and Graham Hancock were discussing the origin of the Sphinx, they proposed a date that seemed fairly reasonable around 10,500 BC. But then along comes West and he's looking at the conditions of the earth at that time. Things were in upheaval. There's a lot of turmoil. There's some environmental disasters going on. When you look at the structures of the Giza Plateau, it looks like they had a very stable and solid civilization, that there was no upheaval or turmoil going on. So he proposed when he looked even further back in time that maybe the Sphinx was denoting a previous age of Leo way back in the precessional cycle at 36,000 BC. And then as eons passed, we come across many different calamities hitting the earth, especially the Younger Dryas period. And this is where we come into seeing the big water erosion all over the Sphinx and across the Giza Plateau, suggesting that these structures were already in place during the Younger Dryas and received a massive amount of erosion during that period. Now, observing the Bovars astronomical map, Sirius is under the horizon line, and it is not visible from Giza. But in the alignment at 36,000 before Christ, 
Cyrus is above the horizon line and perfectly visible from Giza. And the perfect alignment dates back at 36,400 before Christ, when the pyramids were aligned with the Orion's belt. I achieved the result focusing the processional cycle of equinox and following the Boval's model of investigation. But using modern technical devices, I discovered some interesting clues that led me to the new starting point, which is the astronomical configuration at 36,400 before Christ. When we look at the dating of 36,000 BC, that matches the Egyptian kings list, the papyrus list, all of these documents that suggest that the Sphinx was built 26,000 years prior to the original suggestion. Now, if that were to be the case, we would have lost a lot of the artifacts, we would have lost a lot of the structures, and that is actually also indication that maybe, just maybe, West was absolutely correct, that the original time of the Sphinx and the original time of Zeptepi was not 10,500, but closer to 36,000 BC. Here's one possible explanation for what happened. Let's say there was at least one advanced pre-flood civilization, which we'll call Atlantis. Let's further assume Atlantis existed from at least 36,400 BC until the Younger Dryas impact event around 10,835 BC. These Atlanteans could have built the Sphinx and Giza pyramids during the Age of Leo around 36,400 BC. During the subsequent Age of Leo, which occurred in the Younger Dryas, these Atlanteans could have restored the Giza monuments and filled the Hall of Records either immediately before the Younger Dryas impact event or sometime during the period. Most of these Atlanteans would have perished from the ecological fallout of the Younger Dryas impact, but some survived, perhaps by moving underground or off-planet. After the climate settled, these survivors traveled Earth to transfer their knowledge to the surviving hunter-gatherers. This transfer of knowledge, of agriculture, geometry, architecture, astronomy, and cosmology to places like Mesopotamia, Egypt, and the Indus Valley represents what we today incorrectly consider the start of civilization. Instead, this was the reignition of civilization. In Egypt, this transfer of knowledge was most pronounced at the beginning of the dynastic age around 3000 BC. However, as the years passed on, the depth of this Atlantean knowledge was gradually lost to the sands of time. That's a big story I've proposed, and I'm certain that I haven't nailed the details. The mere mention of Atlantis is enough to arouse derision and dismissiveness from archaeologists. Yet here again, the archaeological, mythological, and geological records support the idea that an advanced civilization could have actually existed before the Great Flood. For example, the first written record of Atlantis comes from Plato's dialogue, Timaeus and Critias. Timaeus and Critias was written around 360 BC. In this dialogue, Plato recounts a story passed down through generations to Critias. Critias's ancestor Solon visited Egypt in the 6th century BC on a diplomatic voyage. This trip has been documented by other ancient Greek sources as well. On this trip, Solon learned from Egyptian priests about the founding of Athens following the most recent deluge and about the civilizations that existed before the flood. Solon learned from the Egyptian priests that Athens had been rebuilt 9,000 years earlier. 9,000 years before 6th century BC matches the end of the Younger Dryas period perfectly. Critias starts the story by telling Socrates, You're about to hear a story which, for all its strangeness, is absolutely true. 
Socrates later notes, the fact that this isn't a made-up story, but a true historical account is, of course, critically important. The Egyptian priests further told Solon that, the human race has often been destroyed in various ways, as it will be in the future too. Though there have been countless causes of briefer disasters, fire and water have been responsible for the most devastating catastrophes. The priests continued, The legends preserved here in Egypt are the most ancient. Even though the human race is actually continuous in larger or smaller numbers, everywhere in the world where neither excessive cold nor excessive heats prevent human habitation. But from long ago, every impressive or important or otherwise outstanding event we hear about, whether it happens in your part of the world or here or elsewhere, has been written down here and preserved. What happens in your part of the world and elsewhere, however, is that no sooner than you have been equipped at any time with literacy and the other resources of city life, than once again, after the usual interval, a heavenly flood pours down on you like a plague and leaves only those who are illiterate and uncivilized. As a result, you start all over again and regain your childlike state of ignorance about things that happened in ancient times, both here and in your part of the world. As it relates to Atlantis, the priest recounted, On this island of Atlantis, a great and remarkable dynasty had arisen, which ruled the whole island, many of the other islands, and parts of the mainland, too. Sometime later, appalling earthquakes and floods occurred, and in the course of a single terrible day and night, the island of Atlantis sank beneath the sea and vanished. Unfortunately, most of the surviving Egyptian records have been lost to time or were destroyed with the Library of Alexandria in the 3rd century AD. That said, many of them do remain waiting to be rediscovered, like the Nag Hammadi Library in 1945. We also can't forget that Vatican City houses 35,000 volumes of ancient texts and their secret archives secured in a fortress-like part of the Vatican. These documents could serve tremendous value for the development of human history and spirituality if they were made available to the general public rather than left suppressed and collecting dust. That said, one text that is alleged to have survived is the Emerald Tablets of Thoth the Atlantean. Here I'll be sharing some passages from Billy Carson's book, Compendium of the Emerald Tablets. The Emerald Tablets were written by an ancient being known as Thoth the Atlantean. To date, there have been two manifestations of the Emerald Tablets. First, thousands of years ago, Thoth created multiple tablets of text and then concealed the locations of these ancient tablets. Second, Thoth chose to incarnate as Hermes the Thrice Great. As Hermes, he carried a single emerald tablet. Seekers of wisdom and knowledge have studied the tablets in the Hermetic tradition up until 1925. Hermeticism is a tradition of study and spirituality based on the writings of Hermes. At that time, Thoth chose to appoint Michael Doriel, also known as Maurice, to locate and translate the original tablets. Thoth ruled Egypt at a time that far outpaces our present understanding of precisely how old Egyptian civilization is. Ruling Egypt for 14,000 years from 50,000 to 36,000 BC, Thoth became the highest of high priests of ancient Atlantis, trained by his own father, the master of masters of pre-Diluvian Atlantis. This ruling occurred after the floods that devoured the ancient civilization. Thoth ascended to earth, where he led the development of a new civilization in the northeast corner of Upper Africa, also named Chem or Egypt. Carson explains the strange tale of how the tablets were buried under the Great Pyramid for millennia, then moved to a Mayan pyramid in Central America in 1200 BC, where they were eventually recovered by Doriel in 1925. 
Dr. Doriel claims that after serving in World War I, he had a revelation from Thoth guiding him to recover the tablets and return them to their proper location under the Pyramid of Giza, which he did. Before doing so, Thoth gave Doriel permission to retain a translation of the tablets. It's on this translation of the Emerald Tablets upon which Carson based his research. For the skeptics listening, if I hadn't lost you earlier in the episode, the story of Doriel and Thoth the Atlantean may have pushed you over the top. Perhaps you can dis- suspend disbelief as it relates to a pre-Diluvian advanced civilization. But a being that ruled Egypt for 14,000 years, who 38,000 years later provided divine guidance to Michael Doriel, and Doriel then recovered the tablets from a Mayan pyramid sailed across the Atlantic, and moved them beneath the Great Pyramid after making an English translation? Isn't Doriel clearly a con man? That's certainly a possibility, and I do not vouch for the validity of Doriel's translation. That said, Carson makes a point in his book to highlight the fact that every major spiritual tradition operating today includes stories of of intelligent beings from above who manifest on Earth to pass along wisdom. Further, Thos slash Hermes has been an instrumental part of Egyptian and Greek philosophy and cosmology long before Doriel's 1925 journey. Perhaps it's time we reconsider the stories of our ancient ancestors, which we've labeled myths. Perhaps when Egyptians speak of Zeptepi as the time of the gods, they're not using metaphor. Perhaps our present-day society has too limited of a conception of the word god. Perhaps planet Earth has witnessed abundant forms of intelligent life, and what different cultures have called angels, demons, hybrid humans, extraterrestrials, transdimensional beings, fairies, giants, psychedelic DMT machine elves, perhaps there is truth to their existence. Given the average human lives about 700 times the life of a fruit fly, is it inconceivable that within our cosmos of infinite diversity, non-human species exist that could live 700 times our lifespan? Perhaps Atlantis itself was a multi-species culture, the likes of which we can't even imagine. Perhaps humans in Atlantis actively interacted with non-humans like Thoth during this golden age, something we humans can again look forward to in the not-so-distant future. These are big questions, and for every question one answers about ancient Egypt, a hundred new ones pop up. Whether or not you believe Doriel's story of the tablet translation, there is no doubt the messages contained within are thought-provoking. Here's Doriel's preface to the Emerald Tablets. Man's search for understanding of the laws which regulate his life has been unending, yet always just beyond the veil which shields the higher planes from material man's vision. The truth has existed, ready to be assimilated by those who enlarge their vision by turning inward, not outward, in their search. In the silence of material senses lies the key to the unveiling of wisdom. He who talks does not know. He who knows does not talk. The highest knowledge is unutterable, for it exists as an entity in lanes which transcend all material words or symbols. All symbols are but keys to doors leading to truths, and many times the door is not open, because the key seems so great that the things which are beyond it are not visible. If we can understand that all keys, all material symbols, are manifestations, are but extensions of a great law and truth, we will begin to develop the vision which will enable us to penetrate beyond the veil. All things in the universe move according to the law, and the law which regulates the movement of the planets is no more immutable than the law which regulates the material expressions of man. One of the greatest of all cosmic laws 
is that which is responsible for the formation of man as a material being. The great aim of the mystery schools of all ages has been to reveal the workings of the law, which connect man the material and man the spiritual. The connecting link between the material man and the spiritual man is the intellectual man, for the mind partakes of both the material and immaterial qualities. The aspirant for higher knowledge must develop the intellectual side of his nature and so strengthen his will that is able to concentrate all powers of his being on and in the plane he desires. The great search for light, life, and love only begins on the material plane. Carried to its ultimate, its final goal is complete oneness with the universal consciousness. The foundation in the material is the first step, then comes the higher goal of spiritual attainment. In the following pages, I will give an interpretation of the emerald tablets and their secret hidden and esoteric meanings. Concealed in the words of Thoth are many meanings that do not appear on the surface. Light of knowledge brought to bear upon the tablets will open many new fields for thought. Read and be wise, but only if the light of your own consciousness awakens the deep-seated understanding which is an inherent quality of the soul. It is expected that many will scoff, yet the true student will read between the lines and gain wisdom. Mystery number five. Who is meant to revive the knowledge of ancient Egypt? The ancient Egyptians understood the relationship between consciousness, cosmology, and human physiology in a way we're only now beginning to comprehend. Whether or not the Hall of Records exists under the Sphinx, whether or not the Emerald Tablets are under the Great Pyramid, a tremendous amount of esoteric wisdom remains in Egypt, hiding in plain sight. The Egyptians encoded their knowledge in their art and architecture. And here again, I'll highlight John Anthony West and recommend his fantastic docuseries, Magical Egypt, for anyone who wants to dive in further. As the Egyptian priests told Solon 2,600 years ago, from long ago, every impressive or important or otherwise outstanding event we hear about, whether it happened in your part of the world or here or elsewhere, has been written down here and preserved. This leads us to the question, who is next meant to revive the important history preserved in Egypt? Could it be us? The materialist paradigm of reality tends to view time as linear because that's how we experience it. However, is it possible that time is in fact cyclical? That as the Egyptians recognized, the rise and fall of civilizations is as natural as the cycle of birth, death, and rebirth? And that a future generation, perhaps on the brink of their own apocalyptic transformation, could benefit from their wisdom? Nikola Tesla said that if you want to find the secrets of the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. I believe that time operates no differently. If we look at the zodiacal calendar, we see that our age of Aquarius is directly counter to the age of Leo. Is it possible that the ages of time resonate with their counterpoints, providing a certain yin and yang balance to the cosmos? As winter is to summer, Aquarius is to Leo that the Egyptians understood this harmonic resonance and left us this gift to help us transition into our own golden age of humanity. The Egyptian, Mayan, and Vedic cosmologies all recognized time as cyclical. When 2012 hit and the world didn't end, people dismissed the idea of Mayan prophecy, failing to recognize that the Mayans never said that the world would end on December 12, 2012. Rather, that this date marked a transition point into the next age. 
I'd like to end tonight's episode with Thoth's prophecy, The Lament, as read by Graham Hancock. The future Thoth describes is dystopian, and yet it is hard to dispute the similarities in his depiction to the world in which we're headed if we're not already there. We tend to fear ideas of apocalypse because in our materialist paradigm, we view death to be the ultimate end of the individual. So wouldn't the apocalypse represent the end of human civilization? Unless, like how we've misunderstood time, we've also misunderstood death. Could it be that death is just a transition to what comes next, whatever form of conscious expression that takes? The last several years have seen the world get crazier by the day, and it doesn't appear to be reversing course anytime soon. Perhaps this is exactly the counterforce we needed to recognize maybe we don't have everything figured out. Maybe the people we've trusted as the leaders of the most advanced civilization of all time haven't been doing such a great job. And although we've got fancy technologies like ChatGPT and coerced vaccines, we're still a bit lacking in the spiritual development department. Perhaps if we are going through such a transition today, we can view it as an unveiling, as an opportunity to build something better. Not a new world order, but a beautiful world order. Here is the lament of Thoth to his disciple Asclepius. Do you know, Asclepius, that Egypt is an image of heaven? Or to speak more exactly, in Egypt, all the operations of the powers which rule and work in heaven are present in the earth below? In fact, it should be said that the whole cosmos dwells in this our land as in a sanctuary. And yet, since it is fitting that wise men should have knowledge of all events before they come to pass, you must not be left in ignorance of what I will now tell you. There will come a time when it will have been in vain that Egyptians have honored the Godhead with heartfelt piety and service, and all our holy worship will be fruitless and ineffectual. The gods will return from earth to heaven. Egypt will be forsaken, and the land which was once the home of religion will be left desolate, bereft of the presence of its deities. O oh, Egypt, Egypt, of thy religion, nothing will remain but an empty tale, which thine own children in time to come will not believe. Nothing will be left but graven words, and only the stones will tell of thy piety. And in that day, men will be weary of life, and they will cease to think the universe worthy of reverent wonder and worship. They will no longer love this world around us, this incomparable work of God, this glorious structure which he has built, this sum of good made up of many diverse forms, this instrument whereby the will of God operates in that which he has made, ungrudgingly favoring man's welfare, this combination and accumulation of all the manifold things that call forth the veneration, praise, and love of the beholder. Darkness will be preferred to light, and death will be thought more profitable than life. No one will raise his eyes to heaven. The pious will be deemed insane. The impious, wise. The madman will be thought a brave man, and the wicked will be esteemed as good. As for the soul, 
and the belief that it is immortal by nature or may hope to attain to immortality as I have taught you, all this they will mock and even persuade themselves that it is false. No word of reverence or piety, no utterance worthy of heaven will be heard or believed. And so the gods will depart from mankind, a grievous thing, and only evil angels will remain who will mingle with men and drive the poor wretches into all manner of reckless crime, into wars and robberies and frauds and all things hostile to the nature of the soul. Then the earth will tremble and the sea bear no ships. Heaven will not support the stars in their orbits. All voices of the gods will be forced into silence. The fruits of the earth will rot. The soil will turn barren and the very air will sicken with sullen stagnation. All things will be disordered and awry. All good will disappear. But when all this has befallen Asclepius, then God, the creator of all things, will look on that which has come to pass and will stop the disorder by the counterforce of his will, which is the good. He will call back to the right path those who have gone astray. He will cleanse the world of evil, washing it away with floods, burning it out with the fiercest fire, and expelling it with war and pestilence. And thus, he will bring back his world to its former aspect, so that the cosmos will once more be deemed worthy of worship and wondering reverence. And God, the maker and nature, and it is wrought inside the process of time by the eternal will of the creator. Yeah.